a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, I am joined in the studio with another sample, probably the smarter one, <laughs> some would say, Craig would say anyway. It's uh, Craig Semple, the brother of Jason Semple. Uh, Jason's podcast was episode 75 ex-New uh, South Wales Police, TOU, and then moved into the Federal Police side of things. But today I have his brother on. He was also a New South Wales Police officer, uh, spent how many years? 25 years, mate. 25 years as a cop, uh, detective. Yep. Cake eater, as some would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my brother would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, extensive career, and he has just uh, – well, actually, the book hasn't been released yet, has it? Uh, about a week and a half it'll be out. It will yeah. be, yep. So by the time this podcast is out – First of August it can, it'll be on shelves. Okay, this podcast is going to be out just before then. So we'll definitely touch on the book, The Cop Who Fell to Earth, Craig Semple. So we'll definitely have a, a touch on this book uh, a little bit later. But uh, Craig, mate, welcome to the show. How you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Thanks mate. for the invite. No, I appreciate you coming in. Obviously, you're a, you're a local Novacastrian. Yeah, it's so good to be able to come in and like talk live. In Easy. The it's much better than doing the all the team stuff. And, it, exactly. Yeah. You, you don't follow the Knights, do you? You do. I actually do. Oh, there was God. a period of time, as you know, where I sort of <laughs> didn't follow them. Far but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I do now. Yeah, they're terrible. <laughs> It's a bit disappointing. <laughs> it is. Mate, as I said, you spent 25 years in the New South Wales Police, uh, predominantly as a detective, and um, a lot of these jobs you've done have just, like, over the years is just incredible. And I can't imagine, uh, you know, the effects that it had, obviously, on your mental health, and that's what you're in, you do now is uh, keynote speaking and uh, mental first aid, um, et cetera, so... We'll definitely touch on all that, but before we do, mate, let's get back to young, uh, young Craig, mate. Run us back on those younger days. You know, you and 
young little Jason just cruising through the street and just being little hoodlums. Well, he was a hoodlum. I was. <laughs> I didn't no turn surprise, into one until no I joined the police yeah. force, believe it or not. But <laughs> he uh, he was uh, he was the one who was probably a little bit more adventurous. But um, look, we had a we had a pretty good childhood, all in all. Um, we we grew up at Valentine, which was backed onto all this beautiful uh, bushland reserve, which went down to the the waterfront there at Lake Macquarie, and you know we spent we we were never home. It's it's what I can't get my head around with kids in modern society now, just spending so much time on computer games and everything. We had the ideal life. Um, you know, on weekends in the morning, we'd be gone on our push bikes, we'd be down the bush, we'd be making forts, we'd be fighting each other in wars, um, we'd be taking our fishing rods on our bikes down the lake and fishing and, and doing all that awesome stuff that we used to do. And um, and, and the same, when, when we got home from school, we'd be gone. It was just like, it was just a time where parents could let their kids run far and wide yeah. without too much worry about everything. And that's what we did. So we'd be gone in the morning, we'd come back for lunch and we'd gone again and we'd come back just before nightfall. And that was the only boundaries we had really is just make sure you're back before dark. So it was, it was a good time. And um, uh, look, I, I had a mad, mad interest in fishing. I, I just love that sort of stuff. And I used to do a lot of spear fishing and, and those sort of things as well. But um, went to school and public school at Valentine and then went into the Catholic education system for high school. Yeah, right. So growing up in Valentine, it was just you two? And my little sister as well. She's six years younger than me. Yeah, so you guys. What's the difference age between you and Jace? That's three. Three years. It looks like like he's three years older, but he's actually (laughs) three years younger. Mate. He's expecting this. (laughs) He'd be pushing 70, wouldn't he? (laughs) (laughs) If he didn't have the biking beard, he he, he may have a chance of looking his age. But Yeah, right. So uh, it's kind of similar, similar to my... Growing up, you know, just me and my, my younger brother, but just free range. Yeah. Out. But uh, I guess technology these days has changed everything. Um, Hasn't it? It's a sort of – and I look, at every generation mm. says the same about the, the following generation, mm. you know, back in my day and all this sort of stuff. But I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful for them all, but one of my best things these days when I'm in my local community at Mark's Point is watching kids ride around in a pack on their push bikes and it's- I think – Thank goodness, yeah, we still got some of that happening. Yeah, except um, some of those kids are bloody carrying yeah, knives now and breaking into houses and cars. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so but it was like uh, we we just like like Jason was, and that's why he's he's gone down the career path. He went, I think, more so than than what I did. Um, we, we were always into making different weapons, you know, bows and arrows and you know, Zet guns and every, mm. whatever we come up with, but. Um, Jason probably had a more of an interest in army stuff and, and all those sort of things rather than, than what I did. But but it was just we were always hurting ourselves. We were, mm. we were always covered in bruises, cuts and scratches, and he was really accident-prone. Like he was always in and out of hospitals. Um, <laughs> Mum was a bit worried she was going to get reported to community <laughs> services at one point. Like he, he, I remember one time he, he, he cut his foot open on something or other, had to get stitches, went home. And and then something happened at home, and he busted all his stitches open again. Within an hour, and he was back in hospital getting stitched up a second time. It's like <laughs> the hospital staff are starting to look and go, "Hang on, is there something going on over there?" Yeah. But he was just like into everything. Yeah, just like not no fear of, it, of being hurt or anything. So he was um, pretty pretty active. I, I was a bit quieter than Jason, and he's always said uh, on reflection that I didn't really come out of my shell until I did leave home and until I went went to. Um, Join the cops, and mm. that's that's where I really cut loose. How'd you go at schooling? Pretty average. 
Yeah. Like, like yeah, I was yeah. always just passing. Um, just really, no interest. No interest yeah. at all. I think um, like Jason probably got a bit of this in him as well, but um, I was one of those kids who schooling in large part was a waste of time. Mm. It, the, the subjects I was interested in, like for me biology and a, and a couple of other things, that I, I excelled in because I had an interest in them. But anything that I had no interest in, I just could not apply myself. Maths and English. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, mate. But here I am, English, and I'm writing a book, <laughs> book right? So what's <laughs> happened there? But, but it's um, – but, you know, I don't know. I, I just scraped through all the way through my high school years. And, and like, mum put me through um, private school as well, so it was sort of the, through Catholic high schools. and Which school? I went to St. Pius for the first one, and that was um, – that was an experience, mm. like, you know, considering that they sent me there to get a really good education and good discipline, what they got was anything but. It was just a, it was a nut house, honestly. It was, um, it was all boys when I went through and, look, a lot of teachers from that era at that school have, have been convicted of child sex offences and oh, it was hey. like, they were brutal as psychopaths that, that joined. It was just a absolute <clears throat> crazy place to work. Uh, sorry to go to school, but um, so I, I sort of – it was those those four years I was at St Pius. I, I kept a real low profile. It was a pretty violent place. Like the kids, there was fights all over the place, and there was a lot of bullying and that sort of thing. And I just tried to avoid as, as much as I could. Um, but it wasn't until I went to Year Eleven and Twelve where things started to change for me. It was um, Year Eleven and Twelve. We all went over to St Francis Xavier, which is back then yeah. was only Year Eleven and Twelve. So it was basically like a college. And the teachers, because we're all older students, they, they treated us like adults. And that's where I really started to come out of my shell, got a really good group of mates uh, together. I got my first really long-term girlfriend and, and just had the two of the best years of my life at that school. So it was polar opposites. What year are we talking here? <sighs> so that would have been 86 and 87. Yep. Um, that I was at, at um, St. Francis in year 11 and 12. Um, I think that's about right. Yeah, eighty six. Yeah, and I joined the cops in eighty eight. Haley's, so. uh, Haley's comment flew over eighty six. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right. So I'm just trying to remember fucking Jason's uh, episode, but in regards to family history and mm. military and cops, none. Is there anything? Nothing. That's so, right, yeah. so, like Jason and I, um, and, and my sister, obviously, but particularly f- for young men. Um, Young men need good role models, and I, and as much as I'm going to get into it in any detail, our dad sort of let us down in that space. Um, but our, we had in, in in that space as role models, we had had my pop uh, on my mum's side, so it was my mum's dad, and he was a uh, president of the Ironworkers Union here in Newcastle, so uh, he was really well known. Um, he had he had control of the union, basically looked after all the dockyards in Newcastle Harbour, all the steelworks, BHP, so. He was uh, he was quite a powerful man in, in in Newcastle, in the city, and and in the country overall uh, in in politics. But um, you know, we're really lucky to have Pop. He was just one of these. He was a big man, um, quite solid from all the steel working that he did. You know, unions back in those days, the blokes who actually went into the unions mm. worked the the industry, yeah. and then they worked their way through into you know being a delegate and then getting into some sort of official role. Um, so he was a big, strong man from all the steel work that he still working that he did in the old days before it was mechanised. Um, but not only was he big, but he's just his integrity, his, his calm manner. Um, he was never angry with us. 
he took us everywhere. He introduced us every to lots of people. And what really always used to get me as a kid, you know, we couldn't get anywhere when we went out the shops or we went into town. You couldn't get from A to B without some someone stopping to thank Pop for something yeah, right. or other he'd done. Like there's so many steel workers retired and, and, and serving back in, in those days who he'd, he'd always done something for them or their family. And it always used to fill me with so much pride that he was so well-respected um, by all those people that he helped out throughout those years. And I've always looked up to my pop, and I know Jason has as well. Um, as as I, I, I would say probably the true definition of manhood um, because he also had that integrity and honesty as well, which was really important. Yeah, right. Mate, in regards to the police side of things, did you ever have any run-ins with uh, the cops? As a because I know, like for myself, I had multiple little run-ins, but it was different back then because they just gave you a fucking stiff yeah, arm. Hundred percent. Well, that's why we tried to avoid them. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's like uh, I'd never had any dealings with the police at all. Um, I, I never really even had an interest in in joining the police force. It was uh, yeah, right. But it was it was probably towards the end of my year eleven and twelve. Uh, getting close to my HSC, that um, I started to think about it a little bit because, uh, I, I, in all honesty, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. My my love of the ocean and and fishing and all that sort of stuff was leading me down that path. Um, but given my uh, commitment to my studies, <laughs> that was it was probably never going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then it was actually my pop who started talking to me about why don't you consider a career in the co- in the police force? He knew heaps of cops and you know, police ministers and, and, and lots of other people. And I started giving it some thought, but it wasn't until um, at the end of year 12, I, I ended up with a, another girlfriend and her brother-in-law, um, Ross Grace, he was a uh, detective here in, in Newcastle. And, and he and I became good friends. I, he was, he loved his fishing and everything as well. And when I turned 18, he was inviting me out to some of the, his after work drinks with other detectives. And it was about then that I knew what career I was going into because I was listening to these guys telling their war stories over a couple of beers and, and the camaraderie mm. and, and the friendship and the bonds that they I could clearly see they had and I thought, I want a part of this. This is, like, amazing. So I couldn't wait to get in there. So I applied for the cops and um, I was accepted pretty quickly. Back then it was uh, – look, it's not like it was now. Recruitment back then was pretty easy. Um you need to go through the application processes. They send people out, check all your, your neighbours and make sure you know, all your references are right. But I was accepted pretty quickly. I just had to wait till I was old enough to – you had to be 19 at, at the time you graduated from the academy. So they're back – What's you, the reason for that? Oh, well, like I was 18 when I went into the police academy. Yeah. But you've got to be 19 to be a sworn cop. That's the, the bare minimum age you've got to be. So you yeah, can yeah. go in the academy at 18, but yep. you've got to be at you've got to be 19 when you, you actually nice. what you is, get is that like in. that these days? Or? Yeah. It is still yep. still the same. Still 19. But look, they're usually older than that because they've got to go through like a longer training mm. period. They're doing university degrees and everything for it now. Um, back then we just got 12 weeks of training, just the bare minimum of what you needed, which I think actually worked better. Um, we were paid more at the academy as well. And then we're just sort of thrown out to the big wide world. Yeah, with it. yeah, it's, it's, it is a lot different now. You, yeah, you need a bachelor's degree in arts or something now. Yeah, well, so even the twelve week <laughs> training we got, which is, um, you know, I, I've I've got my own personal opinions about recruitment processes and how it's actually turned a lot of people, particularly experienced people, who've got you know trades under their belt. 
why, why are you going to go to the police academy, give up a job where you're getting paid, then all of a sudden you get not getting paid for a long period of time, um, you know, people have got mortgages to pay, all that sort of stuff. So we're missing out on a, on a lot of good people that potentially that are out there. Mm. When I went through, you got paid at the academy. We had we had people of all ages joining the cop stand and, and guys who had trades behind them who had a bit of life experience, you know, and a little bit of know-how and a bit of common sense. Um, I mean – they, they were great cops. They were fantastic. And they were good people for young guys like me straight out of school to sort of run off as well. Um, but it was really what we learned at the academy in, in that 12 weeks. You go out on the street and you, and you basically relearn everything. Um, so so you, you learn the right way to do it at the academy and everything. But there's when you get out on the street, everything's totally different. Yeah. So let, let's quickly touch on the, the, the academy itself now, obviously 1988. Mm. Another fun fact, Expo. <laughs> well, I do remember <laughs> Up in that. Brisbane. There's one thing I remember. <laughs> I, I was there. I was there as a four-year-old. Bicentennial? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, 1988, political correctness. Mm. It's, only ma- it's, it's only male and female. There's no mm. other. No. You can't together. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty and, simple. And uh, the academy itself was very militaristic. It was, you know, the, the training was, you know, mm. military style. It was like paramilitary. It was, it was, it was a paramilitary, paramilitary organisation, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we feared our, our senior officers, mm. sergeants, you know, yelling at you, all those sort of things. That was, that was part of the course. Uh, at the academy, it was um, it was really rigorous. It was the, the parade training, everything, your, your, your personal inspections, spit polished boots, the whole lot. Butt striking. Were they butt striking people like they were in the <laughs> army? No. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. No. Yeah. Mate, uh, how did you find the academy? Loved it. it. Yeah, loved it. Absolutely loved it. it the was discipline sort of, side of things? The um, Look, I was used to that. Mm. I was used to the discipline through the Catholic education system mainly. Mm. And, my, and my parents are pretty strict as well with that, with the discipline side of things. But um, – but I was used to people yelling at me <laughs> from, from my schooling. And so that side of it didn't really worry me. I, I think probably the scariest time I had was day one because I, when they, they get all the recruits in on the first day, um, they do personal inspections uh, to make sure everyone's sort of fitting all the haircut codes and all the rest of it. And, and look, I, um, I didn't really take that too seriously. I had a, I had a mullet. I love my heavy metal music and all that sort of thing. And that was the first time I got yelled at. It was like get to the barber now. Don't care who's in in front of you in the line. You were first, you know, and you should you should be ashamed of yourself. You disgrace all this sort of stuff. But but um, but after that, I sort of fell into that whole um, rank structure and hierarchy quite easily. And but but what really got me, I think, at the academy very very early, we're all living together in residential towers, and it didn't take long before everyone got to know each other. Then you got your smaller academy mentoring groups and we became very thick in a very, very short period of time. Um, and, and even going through all the training, um, there, there were, were recruits who had trouble with, with some aspects of the training, whether it be academic or the physical side of it. And, and others had, had those skill sets in, in that. And everyone just sort of jumped in and helped each other. And that, and I think that's where that whole, uh, attraction to the camaraderie and the bonding, uh, where, where I really felt like I was part of a, not not just a job. It wasn't even just a career, but it was part of a family. It was it was so for me. It was just I I, I don't know how to. I mean, a lot of people that are listening to this now would would understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, with their backgrounds. But 
it was just something that I got hooked on right at the start. That's awesome. Like it just sounds, I don't know, just completely different back then. Oh, totally Obviously just a different culture. Yep. Uh, again, no technology. So I guess technology has just been the – It's killed us. It's, it has killed us. It's changed yeah. us into different human beings. But yep. just the – it sounds like the standard of cop that was coming out of this uh, force was, you know, had the bare minimum of training but uh, mentally was prepared for what to expect on, you know, your first posting. So your first posting was Redfern. Mm. No. <laughs> Straight into the fire. Straight into Redfern. Yeah. 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 And look, for for people who, um, the people who know about Redfern back in the 80s and 90s would uh, probably show their age a bit because it's like young people might not understand what it was like back then. And without getting into all the, you know, the reasons why there was so much trouble there, there was a a lot of volatility. It was, um, we had a a large Indigenous population at at Redfern and, and for various reasons over, which are well documented. There was a, you know, there was a lot of uh, racial tension in, at Redfern for that reason, and um, so we had a lot of riots back in that in those days at mm. Redfern, um, and and mostly most of the riots we'd have um, would not be reported in the media because they was just so frequent. It was only the really big ones where there were serious injuries and cars set on fire and lots of other things that would actually get reported in the media. But you know, I had workmates who had some pretty serious injuries like, you know, um, loss of eyesight, fractured skulls, all that sort of thing from from those sorts of things. And I found myself in, in a couple of those situations and they're pretty scary when you're surrounded by like a hundred people that are just paying for your blood and um, and you're completely outnumbered. It's it's an incredible What was the feeling. demographic? What was the demographic of people down there? With the main in Indigenous in, yep. in that in, – so yep. Redfern was a bit of a um, melting pot. So we had – an area of Indigenous housing called, which was commonly referred to as the block back then, um, and that was that was a scene of, of, of much of the crime that was happening there. Uh, but we also had in areas around Redfern uh, and Waterloo and Alexandria, we had these massive high-rise housing commission towers. So they're like 20 storeys high and just full of housing commission units. And there was a lot of despair, um, a lot of poverty in, in the area as well, and which – went hand in hand with crime problems, drug problems and, and a lot of other th- issues as well. So it was a pretty tough place to work and a little bit of context, like I said earlier, my brother was probably the toughest out of the two of us when we were growing up and I was someone who'd, who preferred to steer clear of trouble. Um, but here I was joining a job where he expected to run towards trouble. Exactly. Over and over and over again in one of the toughest patrols in Australia back then. Um, so for me to survive that, uh, I had to toughen up really quickly and mainly mentally, and that sort of fed into our workplace culture back then that you had to be tough enough to take everything, and and that had consequences for a lot of people too down the track. But but I um I sort of relished the 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 challenge. I, I, I reveled in it. It was um I, I I guess because I've been so quiet for so much of my life, just to suddenly get thrown into this environment and go, holy hell, this is so fucking awesome like it's like to go to work every day and just not know what's going to happen um you never know what's going to happen on your shift i was so excited to go to work every day just thinking what the fuck could happen today yeah you know and also i was hoping something would happen it was just the adrenaline uh all the time it was just that adrenaline rush and i think because i did work at redfern and and because there was so much action there you know it was always something going on and usually involving violence or some other sort of exciting thing car chases and stuff 
Um, I really did get hooked on the adrenaline rush and, and to the point where in those early years of my career, I didn't even want to have a day off. I, if they offered me to go to work seven days a week, I would have done it. That's how much I love my job. It was just so incredible. <laughs> That's It's funny you say that because I've had obviously a lot of cops from your era and everyone has said that. It wasn't a job. It was more of a – it was just a, a lifestyle. Absolutely. Like you just wanted to get out and get get the job done and yeah. rest bad people. It was uh, – I, I, look, I, I, it's, it's really hard to describe, especially in, in you know, modern mm. um, comparisons. But, uh, look, I, one of the things I think also about Redfern – that was unique was because we had so much challenge there. Um, we had so many, so many big problems going on in that, that place. And it was a tough place to work. Uh, I've always said to other cops that I work with around the state, you know, it was probably the happiest five years of my police career at that joint, because I think the more adversity and challenge you face together as a team, it, those bonds are even stronger. Mm. Um, and I know everyone's ever worked at Redfern over the years, the bonds continue for life. It's like um, we we survived it um, basically. So it's sort of um, – it's one of those things you never forget. And it really did set me up for the rest of my career as well. Do you remember your first arrest? Nope. I oh, no know. idea. It probably was just a shoppy, so yeah. the shoplifters. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically we had buddy trainers. When we got out of the academy, we'd had someone look after us for three months. I was lucky that I had a buddy trainer that was – probably exceptional in his time, really ethical um, and did everything the right way, no shortcuts. So he taught me how to do my job the right way from the start. And usually first arrest, they'd sort of get you to cut your teeth on a shoplifter or something pretty you know, low key just to get that, um, you know, build your skills mm. up uh, slowly over a period of time. No, nah, I can't remember. Got can't no remember. idea. How many do you reckon you did in that first posting? In At Redfern? Redfern? Yeah. Oh, hundreds. Hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds of arrests. It was um, particularly in uniform. When you get in, into plain clothes, into the detective stuff, um, your investigations you know, are ongoing and it takes a while before you, you work your way towards an arrest. But in uniform, you know, you're going to brawls at pubs and locking people up for assaults and going to domestic violence um, situations, which were rife back there, you know, especially with all the Housing Commission towers and et cetera. Domestic violence was a big thing, so we were locking up people multiple times a night. It was like multiple arrests every night. You're just rolling them through. So, how was the system back then? Was it good? Was oh, it's so easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't have computers. Yeah, everything was done typewriter, typewriters with carbon <laughs> carbon back yeah. like quadruple it. So if you made a mistake somewhere, like you, you'd be forgiven for for a few mistakes yeah. on, on your paperwork. You just put crosses through a word and let's move on. But if you had too many, you just had to rip it out the side and start all over again. But this is what I don't get with technology. It's it's supposed to make life easier for us, but it's amazing with computers. The more um, the more programs and and you know the more advanced computers have got, the more systems exactly we seem yeah. to want to. Put yeah. burden ourselves with, and back then all we had to do was just do our fact sheets, and 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 because we were using typewriters, we kept things just all, all the wording of everything really simple, short and sweet and concise. But we could roll through an arrest through to charge in an hour. Uh, but yeah, now right. yeah. you're stuck there for three or four hours at least. Um, Processing all the custody management stuff they do now, it's just like booking someone into a, a motel. Basically, you know, the whole system of of what they do. So the police has become very burdened in red tape mm. in these days. Back then, it was so easy. How was the court system? Are they 
Yeah, it was a lot Strict. easier. Well, so was it still shit like it is now? <laughs> well, now it was <laughs> reoffenders. Yeah, re-offenders, no, nothing's re-offenders, changed there. Yeah. But um, but one of the things we, that has changed back then, uh, for probably the first four year, five years of my career, um, cops. You couldn't read your statement, so you prepare a statement for court to give evidence, and uh, you weren't allowed to read it out in in court. You had to memorize it. So if you had a statement that was five or six pages long, um, you had to memorize oh, it, did you? give it verbatim <laughs> over in the. It was so ridiculous. <laughs> but you always see you hang out outside of court, and you see cops walking around in circles with their statements trying and to you know, trying to memorize it. it. Was hilarious, but it was also quite stressful. Um, and especially when you get – you might memorise it, get in the witness box, and then all of a sudden you're under the pressure of a judge, you know, attacking defence barristers, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, the pressure, you just sort of lose all the, all your memory. But they change all that, and now, you know, as long as you, you do your statement soon after the arrest, you, you can you can actually read it out in court, which makes so much sense. But, but aside from that, um, things haven't changed a great deal. So during your time in Redfern – what were your thoughts about, you know, uh, changing the direction path of, you know, within the police detective or TAU or I don't know what else there is, oh, forensics? Mate, I, uh, I, and it might have been because my mate Ross, who, who you know, was um, a big part of me joining the police force, he was a detective. And I think, uh, I think as I built up experience as a uniform cop, there was a few times where I got my teeth into some more – protracted investigations on, on robberies and, and things like that. And, and I really loved it. I loved the process of uh, setting your sights on something and, and just working it down. And so I think that's sort of where my interest in plain clothes work. Plus the fact that back in those days, undercover operations and things that would happen in the city, street level stuff, they just, um, they set up a strike force somewhere in the city, Kings Cross or whatever. And they would just pull young cops in who weren't, were well-known in the area with no training whatsoever, give us a, a fistful of cash and you just go out on the street in flannels and stuff and, and go and buy as much drug yeah, as you right. could and just bring bring all the drug dealers in. Oh. And, and so I, I got involved in a few of those street-level <laughs> operations and and I think that sort of triggered me too because it was really exciting work for a young cop getting out and doing all that sort of plainclothes stuff. So anyway, I, I, got, um, I got noticed by a couple of detectives that were actually at Redfern and, and they taught me into putting an application in and it was I was in there pretty quick actually and and I think what really once I was in in as a detective, as a trainee detective, I think what really um, drew me and kept me hooked on that work for another twenty five years was it was the thrill of the hunt. It was just like setting your sights on a job or, or a per, or a target and just methodically hunting them down until you caught them. And with that went, you know, you get the dopamine hit from the the, the um from the win. Uh, so I don't know. It was it was and the camaraderie in, in plain clothes too. Back in those days, uh, with detectives, it was you know even another, in my opinion, another level even above uh, what we had in the uniform. But I uh, I instantly fell in love with it. I mean, it, to start my plain clothes career, we. Uh, before we actually went and I started in the detective's office, they sent me out with um, the anti-theft squad in, in Sydney, in the in the middle of the city, and we basically just, just get used to working in plain clothes. And it was like a lot of people had probably watched 21 Jump Street over the years and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. It was just yeah. like basically a, a, a crew of young people dressed in shit clothes. You know, I've got my ear pierced, wearing earrings and stuff like that. Oh, did you? 
yeah. <laughs> Wish my pop wasn't that, that impressed with. Anyway, so so running around all over the city just with with a just an open ticket, go out there and just lock up as many people as you can. Uh, and and we're mainly targeting drug dealers and robbers mm. and, and things. And oh, oh my god, it's such a good time doing that sort of work. But how effective was all that? Oh, so effective. Yeah. It was like we had a reputation yeah. um, back then, uh, a district anti theft squad. Um, you know, it was it was a pretty elite unit as insofar as just doing good core street level plain clothes work. Um, and we did some more protracted drug investigations as well on nightclubs and a few other things. But but I really really loved that. And then when I went into uh, Redfern Detectives and started my CI career as a criminal investigator, back then we were allocated partners. So you worked with with one individual mostly, um, and I was very lucky to get like three of the best detective I've ever, uh, detectives I've ever worked with in my whole career who taught me, um, you know, my craft at, at a very young age. So I was I was basically two years as a trainee detective there at Redfern. Do you remember your first, like, I guess, detective job? Yeah, it was uh, it was a a, a young Chinese uh, national, and she was. She was married to a, a Chinese guy too, and um, and he had done some pretty horrendous stuff to her. He tied her up and sexually assaulted her, and and did some pretty brutal things. I remember it only came in as a as a domestic violence situation. I was thinking oh, I was given the task of of interviewing, getting a statement. I still remember I was sitting there just taking what I thought was going to be a mundane statement, and with an interpreter as well uh, present because she didn't have very good English and. And all these little things started to come out as she was going along and, and it was sort of, you know, it was one of the first times I thought, you know, you've got to keep your eyes open and have really good peripheral vision with this stuff and pick up on the little cues. And, and she wasn't coming straight out where I just had a sixth sense there was more to it. And it turns out he he, he raped her, he tried to kill her, um, he, he strangled her with a rope and all heaps of other horrible stuff and and before we actually got go out and, and grab him, he jumped on a plane and headed back to China. We couldn't, and, and that was never dealt with. But, oh, that was it. Yeah, it was the end of it. Oh, but it shit. was. So, well, we investigated it like ruthlessly for a long period mm. of time. We didn't know he was, he'd gone to China for for quite a while, so we were on a hunt for him for a while. But that was probably the biggest one that that I started out with. It was like you know, um, just to start out with just what you think's a mundane job, and then all of a sudden it blows out. But then uh, got into a few jobs with uh, with. Back then, armed robberies were were pretty common. Not like they are now. It's, yeah, it's like bank t- robberies. Bank and, robberies. Yeah. Um, we had one bloke who's running around with a pistol. He was he was sticking up banks all over the place, and you know it was really good fun working on on that with with a the offside I had back then. And you know, um, and we actually caught him in the end. Um, there was there was quite a few few big jobs over that period of time. Probably a couple of my first big drug jobs as well were done there. Um, haven't read my first drug operation as a trainee detective there on a on a woman who was pretty infam- infamous back then for the love boat political scandal that yeah, happened yeah, back yeah, a, a yeah, long time ago, yeah. and she was a rampant heroin dealer, and um, so I worked on her for doing surveillance and stuff like that for a week before we we went in and and locked her up, and um, but it was sort of that job in particular brought my attention to the despair that. And, and the horror of uh, and the and the depressive side of drug work too because and I, and I've shared this story in, in the book but um, I, I remember when so we did the surveillance on her for for about a week and um, and we we're up in a in an office block tower probably about eighteen stories up doing the observations of the house and all the office girls were always 
spending a fair bit of time, <laughs> time around, keeping us company around there. But um, when we did the raid, uh, I remember getting called up to her daughter's bedroom um, during, and I was, I was downstairs in the kitchen and the, the guys, my team members called me up and I walked into this, this teenager's bedroom and it was just blood everywhere. It was the whole room was like some sort of macabre artwork. It was, and and what it actually turned out that it, she, she was doing, she was so she was a heroin addict like a mum, uh, and a prostitute, yeah. and um and she was drawing blood out of her arms with a heroin syringes and squirting it all over the ceilings and all over the walls, and it's I've cooked. never seen anything like it. It was just needles, blood everywhere, and and mum was just permitting it, allowing it to happen, and that was probably the first time I've really got a good understanding of what it was about, especially hard drugs, uh, what what they did to people. And over those years I intended – and I'd, 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 I'd gone to a lot of drug overdose deaths as a uniform cop as well. Um, so as much as the drug work that I got sort of attracted to was exciting work, there was also a, a bit of a sadder side to it as well. Yeah. When you talk about death – now, sorry, I just want to go back a little bit. Can you tell me about the first time you encountered, obviously, trauma or yeah. or death? Which it's funny because I've asked every single cop, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah. I remember that oh, first yeah. that first grandmother I I went up to, and she's just pulled the pin." Absolutely, you know, I remember just, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, there we was, go. But it was one of those things where, so my buddy trainer Matt O'Neill, he's he's such a good guy, but he he'd already teed up with with another Redfern crew that you know if, if you get a deaden, with what, what we called deceased persons back there, deadens, and. Uh, if you get one, sing out because I want to expose Craig to his first DC. So, so anyway, she called up, and um, and he was and Matt was trying to prepare me. He said, "Mate, you know, if, if you feel sick or you know it's too much for you, don't don't be embarrassed. Feel free to walk out or whatever you want to do." And I thought to myself, "No fucking way am I going to do that. No way in the world. I've got, got to make sure when I walk in there, I I have a good." Um, I have a good presence. I don't want any. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to think I'm a pussy or anything like that. So, I sort of prepped myself for it. So we walked in, and it was a it was a, a, a small housing commission unit, and it was in the middle of summer, so it was really hot. and And the unit had been locked Stunk. up. It was yeah, it had been locked up for three weeks. This bloke had been dead for oh, a while. three weeks. Oh yeah, it was not good. <laughs> anyway, so so they were prepping me outside out outside the door, and when I walked in. Like I just saw this guy. I don't know how big he was before he died, but he was just so bloated and and black from from decay. But he had no pants on, and his balls were as big as a watermelon. Mm. I, I swear, though, mm. I've never seen anything like it. And I started laughing, and, and these guys they thought, you know, we're going to have to probably show Craig out. He's not going to be able to handle it. They just, I'm, the fuck's the matter with you? What are you laughing at? And I said, I've never seen like balls that big. It was just something about it. And I think it was probably because I sort of psyched myself up to walk in there and put on a good show. Um, but I may have overdid it a little <laughs> a little bit. But that was the first one. But it was sort of one of those things where – and this, I think, for me, started the whole process where cops, um, one of our biggest – well, their main set of armour that we have is, is black humour. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and we just always find a way to laugh something off or find jokes, which most people would find highly offensive – or, or, or just think we're all crazy or weird, but it was the way we dealt with death and grief yeah. was just to, to make a joke of it. It was, uh, and so that was the first one for me, and first of many. Um, you know, even at Redfern over those years, I, I, I wouldn't, I would not have a clue how many dead people I saw over that period of time over my whole career. 
not a not a clue. I mean, I'm talking about hundreds, not not you know dozens. Um, hundreds and some, yeah, literally. Like, because as a detective, we had to investigate every oh, single everything, murders, death, suicides, and, yeah. Everything. So, um, so it is a lot of build and and car accidents, all those sorts of things. But I think the probably the worst one I'd actually saw in early in my career when I was probably the first twelve months I was at at Redfern was at the train station, and I was a young bloke got hit by a train. I don't know why he ended up on the tracks, but whether it was suicide or not or an accident. But I can tell you now what a train does to a person. Um, it's not pretty to look at. Um, so. That was probably the first time I was actually exposed to horrific scenes, but it never really worried me. It was I think I just had a knack like most cops do, and ambulance officers as well. They, they're exposed to a lot of stuff. Is that you just put your head down and get on with the job. Okay, you don't let the emotional side of it get in. in well, try not to let, let the emotional side sort of – because if, if you do, it can hamper the way you, you, you do your work. Did, did it change with like seeing – dead kids or, you know, yeah. like that's, for me, that's, you know, being a father. Like, yeah. It was just, just pulls a different string. It, yeah, it does. But, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of uniform blokes probably see more dead kids than what yeah. kids do because they've got to go to, although we, a lot of things that they go to. So I, I went to a few SIDS deaths and, and it was probably more, not so much about seeing, for me, this is just me personally, um, it wasn't so much about seeing a baby dead in a cot. Uh, that it was. It was more about the grief of the parents mm. that would really get me. Mm. Um, but I, see, I, I don't know. I always looked at dead people like they weren't people anymore. It was it, so that side of it didn't get me most of the time. Um, it was more about the grief that that other people were going through that would yeah. sort of pull on my strings the most. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Now, mate, you spend what say about two years uh, in the city, and then you get your first uh, outback posting. Yeah, sort of. What sort of drove me down that path? I was having a great time in the city at Redfern, in particular. Um, but without getting into details, this was way before the Royal Commission in the police corruption in New South Wales and Wood Royal Commission, and, and our culture back then was pretty loose. It was a huge drinking culture, and there was a lot of other stuff going on too, and. As much as I was having a good time, I was starting to get in, in a little bit of strife from time to time. Um, and I, I just what, what do you mean? Let's let's just, break this down. Well, like just getting drinking, um, drinking or, mainly, yeah. and, and going out and getting caught out drinking, and, and maybe getting a few scraps as well when I was out oh, yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and so I, I just found myself pushing the boundaries, pushing the, yeah. the boundaries yeah. just a bit too much. And and um, and I thought to myself, as much as I love working here, if I stay here, it's not going to end well. Like I'm either going to end up in trouble. Um, the amount of drinking I was doing, I was probably going to end up pretty unhealthy too. Um, and I definitely was broke. Yeah, <laughs> I was up to my eyeballs in line of credit on my police credit union card, and um, and I thought, nah, it's sort of one of those. T- I think I was getting to that stage of my life where I actually thought about, you know, at some point you're going to have to settle down. And is the city the place you want to do it? And the answer was no. Um, so. I was lucky enough to be working at that time with a, a bloke who'd spent a lot of his service in, in country areas in New South Wales and he used to tell me some great stories about his country policing and and I and I, I guess that sort of helped helped me sort of head down that path. And anyway, I've put in a couple of applications for various country postings as a detective and, and they all got knocked back because I was so junior. Um, I still wasn't qualified detective and a lot of places were looking for that. But then this, this little town at Hay um, – 
outback New South Wales, somewhere between Sydney and Adelaide, uh, only 3,000 people. It was a sole detective's position, so there was only one detective at the police station and, and the rest were just some – there was a few uniformed blokes. and So I put in for it and I got it pretty quickly because not everyone was lining up to head out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And uh, and it was an amazing experience. I still remember the first time I drove out there in my little Suzuki Sierra 4-wheel drive um, to go and look for accommodation at Hay. And as soon as I, as soon as I turned off the highway – uh, the Hume Highway and headed west out through Wagga and and then the whole world just opened up. It was just the expanse of it, um, the emptiness, the ruggedness of it, of it all. Um, I instantly fell in love with the country. It was just unbelievable. I thought, um, this, this is a huge dynamic. And I remember my, the, the bloke who taught me into, into doing the country move, uh, he said to me before I left, he said, you know, if you, you go out there as a sole detective, it won't break you but it could make you, um, you know, if you take the opportunities that you got. And I think the biggest thing I got out there was, number one, uh, country people don't suffer fools real easy. Mm. And I walked out, I, I went out from the city with a big city detective chip on my shoulder and they sort of, they chiseled that off pretty quick. But the other thing about just working out there as, as a sole detective, especially young, and, and at that time I was unqualified, I still hadn't uh, done my detective's training. But I learnt my craft by being thrown in the deep end of the pool and learning to swim that way. It was like there was no help. It was basically I was it. And you know, I just had basically had to pick the ball up and run with all the jobs as best I could. Yeah, right. And during this time you get your first uh, – you lead your first murder investigation yeah. as a 24-year-old. Yeah. Because so you're the only detective out there. I was the only there. detective there, right? So <laughs> it was like it's, – and this is the thing. I, I've looked back at my career and I think of all the crazy things that I've been exposed to over the years. It always seemed – because I've transferred around a lot. I've – I didn't just stay in the one place. I moved around. And it just seemed every time I, I transferred to another place, something would happen that hadn't happened for a long time. And I think it had been something like 15 or 20 years since Hay had had a murder. And within three months of being, me being there- Straight up. Yeah. There's a murder. Yeah. And and it was a pretty serious job too. It was like this bloke, for no no reason whatsoever, had just gone out on a, on a a with a killing intent, took a big bowie knife with him cut one bloke open and right across his chest. Um, he was lucky to live. Then he chased this group who had nothing to do with anything at the pub and um, and just drove his knife into the back of a young jackaroo who was just walking home with his friends, you know, no, no reason for it. And um, and so the responsibility, I remember when I went back to the police station, uh, we, we got the – went straight out. It was, back then there was no container to negotiate, no risk assessments or anything. Someone told me where the crook was, so we just went and kicked his door in and just dragged him out and locked him up. And it was that's how we did it. It was two assailants. We ended up getting the other one as well. But um, I still remember talking to all the bosses at Wagga. They, they were thinking, oh, no, we've got to send some more experienced detectives over from Wagga. We can't let this young 24-year-old unqualified look after this this murder. And it took me so many phone calls to convince them I was up to it. Um, but, look, I guess – when we actually got the phone call from the hospital that that the victim had had died, um, it sort of hit me about the res- the weight of responsibility that was on my shoulders from that p- point on, because I had um, I had a responsibility not only to the victim who died, but also the family that was left behind and all his friends to get that justice that they all. Um, I mean, it's the only thing they could hope for after losing their son, and I still remember, um, like you know, after solving my first homicide. 
going to court over at Narendra, sitting through the court case. It was all night. It was an all-night job. Um, next day I had to, on my way back from court, had to call into the sheep station where this young fellow worked and his parents had come down from Sydney and they were there um, waiting. And it was sort of, I was really pumped on my first murder charge and everything walking up until then. And then when I met those parents and saw the, the pure raw grief on their faces of, of it's, you just can't describe it. And it was just that inability to be able to give a, a reason why they've just lost their son. It mm. was just so, so challenging. And, and I think it sort of gave me a real appreciation from there on in how important homicide work was and, and, and how important my job was to the, the families of the victims who were left behind. Um, because that was that they just needed to trust me, and and those two Ron and Narelle, they 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 trust me in spades. Um, so I saw them through that whole legal process, and and as a young fellow, it was um, that's a lot. That's, you know, when you think back on it, it's, that's a lot to sort of deal with. Um, but I did, and I did that uh, over that period of time, and and those guys got convicted, and that was a pretty good result in, in the end. Yeah, right. So you got the job done. Got the job done, yeah. And yeah. so I remember when I turned up to my detectives course, we had to um, bring one of our brief of, it, of evidence there. They bring in experienced detectives from around the state and they, they do a review on your brief and ask you to interview you about it and ask you questions. And, and most of the people, would, my classmates, um, were bringing in, so like a breaking in a brief or a, uh, maybe a minor drug dealing brief. And I'd drop this massive murder, <laughs> what, three volumes of a murder brief on, the, on their laps and they've gone – you fucking serious? Have you already you've already investigated a murder? You, you sure you're the officer in charge, the informant? I said, yeah, I was it. I was, wow, and they're calling each other in. This bloke is they've already investigated a murder. So I mean, and that's one thing about country policing. Um, it, it, there was ample opportunity to yeah. be exposed to a whole range of different crimes. That, quite honestly, in the city, if that murder had happened, and I was working at Redfern. The homicide squad probably would have come in and investigated. Take or seen, it over. I would have yep. been the coffee boy. Yeah, but out there I was it. So yeah, I, I learnt my craft. Basically yeah. that way, it was good. That's hectic. Now from uh, Hay, you moved into Wagga Wagga. Yeah, that's an interesting place. Yeah, it Wagga. Is. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you know it. <laughs> I've done a little bit of time down there. <laughs> yeah. Kapuka, I played army. Uh, Rugby Union with Kapuka. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. barracks there. Yeah, yeah for right. a couple of years. So that was uh, 1996. Uh, move out to Wagga and mm-hmm. obviously, uh, you know, a, a semi, it's a regional area, but it's a larger little city. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we had a big detectives office there at, at Wagga. We had about uh, 14, 15 detectives there. And I think, I, I, you know, the, the small country town stuff, it, I'd, I'd sort of grown a bit bored. Um, you know, I ran out of things to do basically out there. And and I just had that longing to get back to the big detectives office again and have that, that camaraderie and all the fun. So when I went out there, it was um, a couple of years just doing general CI work, but we had some pretty big crime problems out there at the time. Heroin was like, just kicking in in the town and we had a jail uh, in our patrol as well out at Junee and I think that sort of led to a lot of the um, the crime problems that we had at Wagga. You know, we're having a lot of people that would – or criminals that would move in from – they go to jail at Junee from Sydney. Uh, their, their family would move down – to Wagga to be mm. close to visit them and then they get out of jail and move straight in with their family. So we had imported a lot of crime problems into that town. Um, so, yeah, we had a big drug problem. We had a lot of um, robberies, a lot of stabbings and things that I got in uh, that I investigated over that period of time. Another person run over by train, believe it or not, as well. I saw in a New Year's Eve with watching, you know, going and looking at a body had been run over a train again. And 
so it was it was pretty full on, um, but it was it was also good work. But it was sort of those first couple of years at Wagga, um, everything was still. I, I had had the career my career in, in um, under control, and everything was going on pretty good. I was married, had a, had my first um, young young son, and um, who we named after my pop. Uh, yeah, right. Yep. And um and but it was about after that two year period was where things happened with my brother and things sort of uh, changed a little bit from that moment on. Yeah, of course. So Jason uh, joins the police nineteen ninety eight. Um, did he chat with you prior? Obviously, yeah. You, you know, you you're already in for what uh what seven years, eight years. Well, it, when he left school, he applied for the cops, got accepted, and then um and then they changed the eligibility. While well, he's waiting to go in the academy, they changed the eligibility criteria and said, "Oh, sorry, you're not wanted anymore." Which is, I was devastated. So was he. So I couldn't wait for him to join. And not smart enough. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <laughs> so um, so so we. To his credit, he went out and got a, a – he, he, Jason just doesn't give up. He yeah. doesn't take no for yeah. an answer. So he went out and, and became a trainee um, mechanical engineer. That's right. Did yeah. the whole thing, got yeah. his engineering qualifications. And then you know, those guys at that, that factory was going, mate, you're the, we love having you here. And he said, sorry, I'm out. I was going to apply for the police again. So he did. He applied for the cops. He applied for the military um, mm. college at Duntroon. Yeah. Got accepted, I think, the same week for both of them. That's right, yep. And I, he called me and he reminded me this, this story some time ago, but I was down at Wagga working and, and he called me up one day and he goes, mate, um, I've been accepted for both. I said, well done. And he said, yeah, but now what do I do? And all I remember saying to him was, mate, I, I don't know about the military, but um, the cops are the best job in the world. I've just loved every mm. single minute of it. So he ended up joining the cops, whether it was because I said that or not, I don't know, but um, so he, he went in the, in the police academy. So it was basically 10 years after I'd, I'd gone yep, through. He, yep. he was there. Yeah. So, just after he leaves the police academy, he's uh, posted uh, into Sydney, yep. and then two weeks later, uh, he was involved in a off-duty uh, stabbing, which mm. claimed the life of uh, Peter Forsyth. Yep. And obviously, Jason copped a, a little shiv as well. Yeah, nearly died. Yeah, yeah, nearly died. It was um, it was incredible. Like I was, I remember like one one day I'm down there watching him graduate at the police academy like I'd done 10 years before and and the, the pride I felt, not just for him but for both of us, mm. uh, the fact that we weren't just brothers in blood but we're now brothers in blue as well. I was so proud he was he was joining the same career that I'd sort of joined and I couldn't wait for him to get into it. And then like two weeks later, um, I'm out camping at Hay again. I took the wife and, and young fella out to – Hey, we're out in the middle of nowhere on a, on a riverbank, no mobile phone service or anything like that. Um, we didn't really have much of it back in those days anyway. But um, four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning, um, I'm being woken up in my tent um, by headlights shining through the fabric and, and ended up being the local cops had come out to tell me that I needed to get into the into town and the police station that Jason had been stabbed. And it was a, obviously a shock. And But I remember seeing the back of the police car getting driven into um, – into, into the cop shop and thinking, well, this can't be anything to do with his work. He's only been out for two weeks. Can't possibly be anything to do with his police work. He's probably been out on the town having a few beers and got in a bit of strife. But then when I went in and and, um, and made that phone call to the police and, and spoke to the commander there in, in Sydney at the time, they, they were, it was chaos because it was, you know, two cops have been stabbed, one's dead. It's a huge homicide investigation going on. But for him to tell me that it was actually over... Um, him and 
Jason in his offside are going and propping some guy who was trying to deal drugs to them. Um, I was just couldn't believe it. I mm. thought, how can this happen? Like only two weeks after I've just seen him larger than life, proudly walking out in his uniform, six foot four, ready to get into it. And two weeks later, I end up in you know, Prince uh, Alfred Hospital. It was I think he was at walking in and seeing him lying on a bed, weak as weak as fuck. Like he'd lost a lot of blood. And he's hooked up to all these machines and he's got tubes running in and out of him. Just for – it was just something that was so, so surreal. It was really hard to process. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was uh, a tough time for him, obviously. But, oh, you know, you know, going through his story, as you said, he's one of those never quitters and then mm. gets even better and TOU. Oh, yeah. Just steps it, it up. Not, what, what, you know? what was even more surreal, I remember um, – because I was with him every day in, mm. in hospital and um, – I was in his ward one day, and the and the nursing staff came out and said, "I oh, was a phone call for you, Craig." And and um, and so I went and got it, and it was uh, Ron and Real Lockhart, who are the parents of that young Jackaroo got stabbed oh, out of Hay, yeah, who's, yeah, who's yeah. murder I investigated and cleared up for him. They said, "Mate, after everything you've done for us and our family, we want to come in to support." And, I, and so I, I went down and saw him outside the hospital. It was too much for me to bring them up, and I just thought. Um, how unbelievably how the world turns. Like mm. here, are the, here are two people whose stab, you know, son they're um, lost in a stabbing murder, and they're here now supporting me with my brother being stabbed up in in hospital. It's just it's just it's so crazy. hard to get your head crazy. around. It yeah. was, and and I didn't like the feeling because I've always been the one who's um, investigating the crimes committed against victims. Now we were. Us as a family, and Jason in particular, we were in that victim category. I didn't like that very much for some reason. It was really confronting. Um, but anyway, but you're right, Jason. Uh, I remember I was so proud the way he handled himself. We got him released so that he could go to the funeral. And um, the, 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 I mean, this is just basically setting up for what he what he did from there on in. I remember pushing his wheelchair. There was media everywhere at the cathedral. And we got to these Big, massive steps. There's still footage of it somewhere on, on the internet. And um, and I was thinking, how are we going to get this wheelchair up these stairs? He just got himself out. Like, he's, he's been cut open. And only th- three or four days early, he's mm. in surgery. He, he pushes himself out of his wheelchair in the uniform that we got him into. And he walked up those stairs. It, it was just, from that moment, I just thought, he's not going to let this beat him. No way. No, definitely, definitely didn't, mate. Definitely didn't. Now, you spend... How long you spend in Wagga? Uh, six years. Six years. Yeah. I got into a drug squad there when I was at Wagga and, and um, I got pretty obsessed with drug work back then because one of the things I, I found hard to process when brother stuff is uh, like I couldn't do anything about There was a lot of anger for me. Um, I, was, I saw a lot of guilt too. I felt like I'd, it's hard to, it's hard to explain and it's not, it doesn't even sound rational, but I sort of had a, a bit of a guilt even though my brother was big could look after himself as his big brother. Still your younger brother. I, yeah, and I yeah. felt like I let, sort yeah. of didn't protect him. And and, um, and so there was that, and I sort of felt a bit of guilt that maybe he wouldn't have joined the police force if I hadn't have said, you know, all the good he stuff could, He could have avoided it and joined so the had, army, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's sort of things where if I actually went and saw yeah. a counsel or something, I probably could have got that sorted out, but I sort of didn't. And then I had this massive, deep, simmering anger started to, to build in me, and – I, I guess I, I still remember I thought, well, I can't do anything about the bloke who stabbed my brother. Like, he's in jail. Nothing I can do about that. But I drew that connection between the fact that it happened over drugs and because I was just about to start up a drug squad with a, with another mm. bloke, 
in Wagga, um, I thought, well, I can sort of get justice in a way because I can go out and hunt down as many drug dealers as I can. So it be, sort of became a, a bit personal doing all that sort of drug work from there on in, and which wasn't ideal because it made me a little bit overcommitted to it. Um, and with that, you know, that's probably the first time I started neglecting my family uh, to some degree because of the sort of work I was doing. Um, but also like we had a, a heroin epidemic sort of hit Australia around that time, it was late 90s, early 2000s, and, and Wagga was no exception. It would, We just got smashed with heroin crime. Um, so it was a busy couple of years. But then getting towards that time at, at Wagga, I, I did a little rotation back into uniform. I sort of was a bit burnt out and, um, and disillusioned as well because the Royal Commission had happened and I guess the – as much as change needed to happen, the police hierarchy at the time, the backbone of it dissolved like an aspirin. It was just and, – and all of a sudden, because so many detectives had been implicated in corruption during the Royal Commission, our our, um, our, uh, our profession suddenly was very unattractive to a lot of cops and we copped a lot of flack and um, they tried to change us everything from – you know, there was a lot of bosses who had a lot of get squares they wanted to um, to do, whether from inferiority complexes or other things, but they wanted to put us back in uniform, uh, get rid of detectives altogether at one point, put us in marked police cars, all this sort of stuff. And I got so disillusioned with it. Um, so I went back to uniform for a, a, a few months just to get my head back in, in the right spot. Had a little crack at leadership then too for the first time um, as a team leader in, in uniform for another three months. And that sort of gave me my first perspective of, um, of leadership and, and what I could sort of give back to younger cops coming through as well. So, you know, by the time I finished at Wagga, which was 2002, I was probably a 14-year police officer. Like by then I've, you'd probably call me a veteran, like 14 years in the cops by then you, you, you had a fair bit of experience. Yeah, yeah, 2002. So you, from 2002 you move uh, up north. Yep. Up yeah. to uh, Coffs Clarence Command. So we had uh, – that command was made up of all the townships of Grafton and, and the surrounding um, areas, uh, all the Clarence Valley and, and Coffs Harbour and all the areas surrounded uh, in, in there as well. So I, I moved up to Grafton. I was, I was put in as relieving um, team leader of the detectives up there as a detective sergeant and worked there for, th- for a few years at, at, um, at Grafton and, uh, and then from there moved down to Coffs Harbour a few years later on. Grafton, is it Grafton as well? Is it, is it that cover that whole area, doesn't it? So at Grafton, uh, I basically had the whole Clarence Valley. So it was, yep. a, it was a big area. We had uh, halfway up to Lismore. Um, we had out west halfway to Glen Innes over the Gibraltar Ranges. We had all the way down to the coast at Yambo, McLean, all the way down south halfway to Coffs Harbour. It was, a, it was a big area, big big population, a lot of crime problems there as well. Um, but that was probably uh, – we were understaffed and we had so much crime on that. I was, it was just we were drowning in, in work. Um, and then I ended up having that, that pretty serious murder down there as well, which sort of tr- uh, tripped me up with a few of my mental health problems that sort of led on from there. So that murder you mentioned, uh, 2003, mm. mate, run us through this. Yeah, so it was sort of – I was working a Sunday and um, and the reason – like I hardly ever worked weekends and uh, – but sometimes you just got to come in the office on a weekend to get paperwork done when there's such, such a backlog. And um, and I was working this Sunday, and this call came over the radio. I was about to turn the speaker off because I was it was interrupting the paperwork I was doing. And, and then I, I heard the call, and sometimes it was it was pretty innocuous sort of message was coming over. Sometimes I, I, it's hard to explain to a lot of people, but over time as as a cop, 
you build up an instinct for things. It's like a sixth sense. And for me, there was something about that call that really got me in. And so I headed down to Yamba. Um, it was an isolated farmhouse in the middle of all these sugarcane fields in the middle of nowhere. And I remember I turned up there and there was a uniformed bloke who had been waiting for me to turn up. And he was with two blokes who, they sort of at that point, I thought they were suspects. But long story short, um, these guys had come across their mate inside who was badly injured and they didn't know how bad, hadn't checked on him. So I basically went in, went in that house. But before I went in there, and this is, I think part of this story highlights how important it is to get education for, for people who are in high-risk occupations for mental health issues or military and and also uh, law enforcement and emergency services. Like we had no education back then, like nothing. Um, so we didn't know the risk factors that could increase the chances of, of developing things like PTSD. We didn't know the signs and symptoms of what to look out for, not only in ourselves but also each other, our workmates as well. So we're flying, bl- flying blind. Anyway, I got to. The, I had to go inside this house on my own. They left the uniform bloke out with these other two guys, and um, and because uh, I had two jobs I had to do, I had to go in and check to make sure no one needed medical help. And the second job I had to do while I was in there was clear the house of danger, make it make it safe for who I'll call in later. And I remember I got around the back of the house and I took out my firearm, and like I'd done many times before, if I had the chance to do it before going into a house or a dangerous situation, I'd always psych myself up before I did so. Um, and I didn't understand the fight flight response back then, didn't even understand how it worked. But I just knew from football and other situations where you pump yourself up, you're going to perform better. That's all I basically mm. knew. So I um, I went through a process where I, I psyched myself up by saying to myself, mate, as soon as you walk through that door, if you're confronted with a threat, do not hesitate. Do not hesitate to pull the trigger or you might end up dead. So it's, it's about reinfor- all that positive reinforcement of – everything I've been trained to do um, before I went through. And and that sort of got the whole adrenal system fired up. Um, but what I didn't understand about adrenaline back then, apart from physically pumping you up and making you combat ready, um, it also heightens all your sensory experiences. Of course. So all this oxygen-rich blood going through your brain and so your, your, your sight, you know, I look back in hindsight, colours became brighter and more vivid. Um, your hearing, smell, taste, touch, mm. all get turned up full volume. So, like, I'd been exposed to a lot of horrific scenes up until this point in time, but I don't think I'd ever felt like I had this particular day, and it was mainly because of the adrenaline. So I went in. The house was a crime scene from the back door to the front door. There was – there was, um, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into it, but it was – Let's mate, there make was, it deep, there was, yeah. There was brains everywhere, all through the house, yeah, blood right. everywhere. What, from was, one person? Yep. Yep. And um, but I, di- I didn't actually understand that it was brains that I was walking through to start with. It was just, it was just obviously biological matter. But I, until I actually saw the victim, I had no idea what it was. So I had to not only get in and clear this house room by room at gunpoint, but I also had to be careful where I stood. Um, and because it, number one, I didn't want mess on my shoes, but I did also didn't want to mess up a crime scene. Crime scene, yeah. But anyway, by the time I, I cleared the house room by room, by the time – in everything, I still remember the smell of the house, which is uncanny. I can still smell the, the stale beer and the, the smell of cigarettes in, 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 in the air and all almost that metallic smell of blood. Mm. All those sort of things were really vivid. We can still remember vividly the light that was coming in because it was this – the front door that led down the hallway where, where all the brains were, it was um, – it had like a yellow stained lead light in the door and the and – the, Light coming through was this eerie yellow. And um, anyway, so I got 
cleared the house, got to the last room where the body was, and I remember um, the body, I, could, I knew obviously straight away he was dead. Um, there was blood everywhere. And I thought, I need to check. Before I walk out of here, I need to check and get some idea how this bloke is, has died to see whether or not it's an accident or whether it's a, a, a murder. Anyway, he had a talc uh, covering his head. And I remember um, getting myself in a position where I could lean over his body, foot, foot either side, and I reached down and found a clean uh, edge of the towel and I slowly pulled it back. And and what I saw was basically like his, his face was all a bit contorted and everything, obviously dead. And the more I pulled back of the, the towel, next thing you know, whole back of his head's gone, brains are missing. As it was just, I was looking right into it. And as much as normally that might not have particularly affected me, it was just all this adrenaline that was flooding through me because it really heightened all those sensory experiences. Really absorbed it more. Yeah, I burnt, yeah. it burnt them in. It yeah. burnt, it, and I had no idea back then that that's, that's what would happen. So all the things I could see, smell, touch, everything, um, taste in the air, all those experiences got really burning deep and sort of scrambled the way my brain processed everything that happened in there. And I, so I, could, I could feel something different in, in the house that day. It was just this um, in pervasive evil uh, that I felt. I remember I, I couldn't wait to get out of the house. Uh, I had to be careful on my way out and, and got out in the sunshine and sucked in some, <laughs> gratefully sucked yeah. in some fresh air. Yeah. But then, uh, mate, straight into business. It was right head down. Uh, I've got a job to run now. So um, ran a four-week investigation into, into that murder. It took us four weeks, had phones tapped and stuff like that, and eventually got, got the bloke who did it and um, charged him with murder. But, um, at, you know, back in, backing straight onto that, so we had that uh, had that homicide and everything was was dealt with and and um, and once again looking after the family of the victim and they were once again elderly people and my <laughs> my heartstrings for old people were so we had to had to basically I'd do a lot of victim care with them but it was only a few days after we solved the the murder that we had our detectives Christmas party at Coffs Harbour so basically we were a team we had the Coffs Harbour detectives in Grafton but we we're all part of the same command so we had our detectives Christmas party and and um, and I remember it was just like so looking for. We were look so looking forward. We had such a big year uh, of, of work, and it was just a chance to relax and unwind with a couple of beers with your colleagues. And there was prosecutors from the DPP there. There was wives and girlfriends. Anyway, um, we'd had a few beers, and then one of my um, one of my colleagues and I, uh, we'd gone in into the pub because we we're in an outdoor area, and we'd gone in the pub to sort of set, set somewhere up for the whole crew to come in uh, to finish the night up. Anyway, um, what happened from there on in, uh, we didn't know, but at one of our local bikey gangs, uh, the Finks at the time, they'd got wind of the fact that we were have, having a Christmas party that night, that, like far in advance. Someone had tipped them off that we're having this Christmas party and they organised uh, some other bikies to come from Sydney and interstate uh, and they got them up there and and these guys had uh, had a had a plan to attack our Christmas party as a reprisal for some of the things that we'd we'd done with them that year. Um, even my brother was involved in one of their their drug busts. He was he fired a ferret round through through one of the bikies' mm. cars when they were yep, trying to yep, trying to escape yep. during a during a by bus operation. So anyway, so they had um, they, these guys turned up in a maxi cab, and and they they directed the, the cab driver to park out the back laneway of the pub, gave him fifty bucks, said. What we're going to do, it's not going to take very long. Do not go anywhere. Um, so they sent one bloke in to target me and my mate. Uh, we're on our own and um, we were totally not expecting it. And 
this bloke just came up basically and King hit me in the draw. Mate had already just gone off to get some drinks, so he wasn't there. And I just thought, what the fuck has just happened? I get out of nowhere and I just looked at this bloke and he's like steroid, the typical bike as you mm. see now, just steroid muscle bound sort of bloke, big neck tattoo, um, nothing about him bikey. Uh, it was just that I could notice. It would be a lot of gold chains and stuff around his neck. Anyway, back then I didn't consider myself like a – much of a fighter, like I'd, I'd hold my own all right, but I didn't also didn't have a glass jaw, and I think he was a bit shocked that he didn't drop me. And uh, so I came back in at him, and uh, the next thing you know, he's throwing beer glass from point blank straight at my face. And um, if it hit me in, in the face, I was my eyesight was gone for sure. And I don't know how I did it, especially after a couple of beers, but I managed to on reflex just put my forearm up and uh, block the glass, it smashed my arm, cut my arm open, but um. And, and then it was just all went to shit in, in, in an instant. It was like the, the security came in and grabbed him while he's putting a set of uh, knuckle dusters on, metal knuckle dusters, and and uh, a couple of my workmates would run in and, and grab me and pull me aside as well. And uh, what had happened, he then gets dragged out to the back bar and all the rest of his gang members are, are waiting out there for him. They regroup. They march out. The rest of the detectives' Christmas party outside had no idea what had just happened inside. They march up and just – basically just go through like a tornado, um, just king hitting cops. And one of my mates went down unconscious and they laid a slipper into his head and all that sort of thing. And there was tables getting thrown everywhere. And once I, I was getting, had um, one of the detectives' wives looking after just trying to stop the bleeding in my arm and I saw all these, sh- heard the shouts and all these moving shadows through the window. And I thought, what the fuck is going on out there? And I threw the doors open at the pub. I just pushed her out of the way and just went straight out there. And it was just running pitch street fight battles up and down the street with between off-duty cops and all these bikies. So I ended up getting right in the stuck in the middle of all that. And, um, look, eventually uniform blokes turned up and, and they, they locked up most of them. I think it was about five of them got arrested that night and um, before they could get away in their cab. And uh, so it was pretty full on. So it was sort of – Multiple incidents. They had the murder, and then this this incident with the with the bikies. It's happening in really close proximity, and um, and and there was a, there was a few things sort of fed on from that as well. Like I, I'd, the bikie thing was one thing, um, but as as detectives and as cops, always felt like you know if something like that happens, that's all right. We'll just come up with our plan and we'll fight back. And so about a week later, we had this lunch between us and the, and the cops detectives, one of our commanders. And um, I actually thought it was going to be a bit of a, a briefing at this lunch about what we were going to do about it. Because I remember my brother had called me from from the TAU and it, by now he was a he was a weapon. He, yeah, he's he a was big, a big boy. He's a big boy. Yeah. He's six foot four. He's about 100, at then probably about 110, 112 kilos of muscle. Yeah. He, was, he was a qualified sniper. He was doing everything uh, by then. And, and he rang up from the TAU and said, mate, when are we coming up? And dealing with this, and I said, mate, I'll let you know. We're going to, we're going to come up with a plan. And I have guys from drug squads in Sydney saying, mate, they've crossed the line. When are we coming up? So everyone across the state, like this is the first time that I knew of that bikies had actually crossed that line that they knew not to cross, where they attacked us off duty, and also with their families present. And um, and so I remember had a had a chat with the boss. We're at this lunch, and there'd been no discussion about what we were going to do about it. And this isn't about this isn't about revenge. This is about um, taking back control. You, you just cannot leave organised crime groups like bikey gangs to think they can do things like that to cops and and not be consequence for it. And um, 
Anyway, it was a real disappointment because he basically said, look, we're not doing anything about it. We'll just let it run through the courts. And, and I just said, mate, you've got to be kidding me. Like 10 years ago, by now, that clubhouse would be gone. They wouldn't exist here. And this is the way we do things now. And it was really disappointing to have that lack of support um, from senior managers. And I think for me mentally, and that's in combination with that homicide, it was that lack of support that really compounded the anger that I and 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 the trauma of, of of what had actually happened that night with this attack, um, because I think if we'd had some element of control and we're able to go back there and say right, there's a consequence for this and carry out that consequence, that would have given me some sense of satisfaction. But without that, it, it sort of left me. Um, it's probably the first time I became quite unhinged. The way I was thinking, it was sort of. I became quite withdrawn for a period of time and, and uh, could think about nothing other than this bikey gang and, and what should should happen to them. Who was, uh, when you talk about this commander, was he like a local area commander type thing or was it a- No, he was, he was a chief of detectives. I won't say his, his name, but he was, uh, it was, he was, he was the, uh, his, his role was called the crime manager and he's basically looked after all the, all the crime side of things in, 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 in commission officer. Yeah. Um, but, um, so he was just playing that side of the fence. Oh, it's, just, it's just that low risk attitude. Yeah, you know, it was one of those things. So where, he was a pussy. Well, <laughs> I wasn't real happy with his with his response. You know? Yeah, and, and neither were some of the other guys. You know, the guy. So I went to hospital, got a couple of stitches. The guy who got kicked in the head and everything, he was he was in hospital for a night or two with con- bad concussion and and uh, and we were all really disappointed mm. about this 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 uh, lack of action. And you know, I, I still remember. So my night, I started having nightmares um, from that that night, and, and the nightmares were all mainly to do with that that homicide, um, and they were really terrifying. It was the nightmares very hard to describe. I describe them in the book. It's hard to describe them in, in in verbal words, but basically every night I was visited in a house. It was so similar to that um, with the, the light and everything in in that where that murder happened. This like monster, it's like a humanoid type monster who was just um, hunting me, and was and and I always wake up at the point. Where I was stabbing it, trying to defend myself with it with a big carving knife, and knowing I was can't actually kill it. can't kill it. Yeah, and I couldn't run away from it. Yeah. I tried to run as fast as anything. It's probably a common theme in a lot of these <laughs> nightmares. So, so my legs would be pumping, and I wasn't even moving. And but I'd wake up at the point where it was about to kill me, and mm. it was really terrifying. Mm. But but then also I was laying awake at night, ruminating over the bikey stuff too, and and I found myself, um, and and as much as it sounded, it sounds crazy. It's actually quite. Um, rational is that the only way I could get some sense of relief and satisfaction about what had happened to us was I'd, I'd lay awake at night while I was, you know, tossing and turning after a bad night's sleep, nightmares and whatever, and I would actually be fantasizing and planning my own off-the-books retaliation to these bikies. So I'd be planning all the different things. And they all all those plans involved lots of violence and and long long stints in jail. Like, there's no way I was ever going to carry them out. But even just like planning it and thinking through it about all these options gave me some sense of relief. But it was also like mentally, it was mentally quite toxic. unstable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. So I was sort of I, especially I went for, a, for a while. detective. Yeah, it was you know, uh, like, well, absolutely. And it was felt probably the first time I became really reckless in the way. Mm. Not only was I thinking, but also the way I was, I was behaving. I remember walking into a pub um, uh, at Grafton one night. And uh, it was full of outlaw bikies in their colours, all the motorbikes parked outside. I walked in on my own and they'd been picking on a couple of um, probation, young probationary constables who were just out of the academy and uh, I finally caught up with them 
Um, and I was off duty, but I just walked straight into this pub, picked out the sergeant at arms and tried to ask him, challenge him to a fight in front of all of them. And, and the whole place went into a meltdown. Everyone wanted or surrounded me. And I was sort of, I was just laughing at them like I was, like I was just fully crazy. And I think the only reason I probably walked out of there alive was the fact I thought that you were crazy. I thought I was mad. Yeah. Like, what's the matter with this yeah. bloke? Who does that? But I went home and I, I just remember laying in bed just thinking, the fuck's going on? This is really, really unsettling. Um, so I was probably the first, I actually made an appointment to go and see a psychologist, didn't tell a soul that I was doing it. No one uh, knew. So I went and saw the psychologist and, and um, you know, all he did was talk about himself and I thought, this isn't going to work. So I just thought to myself, fuck this, never going back to one of these again, just harden up. No one ever dies of a nightmare. So just go to work, suck them up, don't tell a soul. Um, and that's what I did for the next eight or nine years. Fucking hell. Over that, uh, up until that time, I guess, you would have noticed the changes in the police force as in the political correctness started to creep in. As you said, this commander's come out and said, no, nah, mate, we're not doing nothing. Mm. You know, but again, you would have seen the full transition from, you know, if this happened, let's just say early 90s, oh. this probably would have fucking oh, yeah. went in and crushed every <laughs> yeah. clubhouse out there. Yep. Even if they weren't responsible, another Correct. club just – Go yep. crush them, but obviously you've seen this transition of policing. Was that part of the effect for you? I think you spoke about it a little bit mentally. You just almost like it's like giving up, and that's not what a police officer is. You want to go out there and chase these bad guys, but you've just been basically told to sit back and cop it. Mm. I think uh, for me, and, and a lot of cops from my generation, it was um, the culture that I sort of fell in love with had by and large already gone. And um, and now we were now all these constraints were coming in where there was such risk aversion, and it's only got worse since I got out. Um, and I've been out for ten years now. Mm. It's the risk aversion is such a, a disappointing part of law enforcement now. I mean, you join the the cops knowing that it's a dangerous job, um, but and you got to take some steps to make sure that you, you're not doing like taking stupid risks and, and putting people in unnecessary unnecessarily in harm's way, but to the point where it actually hampers your ability to get the job done. It was um, that was that was something for me that it took a bit of adjustment to, um, and I was I really struggled with it after that bikey attack. It was one thing that, um, yeah, just left me with a real deep seated simmering anger over that period of time. But it was like from that moment on to up until then, as much as I'd had my, my a few light run-ins with bikies over different times, it was nothing personal. Um, but it was like that that attack that night. It was almost like a starting gun going off for um, my mm. interaction with bikies from there on in because it was just like I could have no break from them. I had a, a bikey shooting uh, not long after that attack where it was – and that was a big job. That was a, an assassination internal. It was an internal war uh, in the outcast bikey gang and the national president and one of his treasurers um, had lined up an ambush and, and shot – the, the New South Wales state president, president in, in an ambush on the highway and he was lucky to live because that, after they shot, they put one round into him uh, through the through the window of the truck and it did a lot of damage. But the second time they tried to unload a semi-automatic thirty two, um, it misfired, jammed the gun. Oof. So we managed to get out. Um, but, you know, I worked on those guys for, I don't know, somewhere 12 months or something like that and lived and breathed them, had phones tapped with all those guys and really got in a sense of what the culture was like within bikey gangs and how they operated. 
and it was just went one thing after another. Um, and then I, when I finally got my team leader's position down at Coffs Harbour, running a tag unit down there, doing mainly drug work, I was lived and breathed bikies through that period of time as well. Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into uh, operational security, but when you say phone tap, this is when all that stuff started coming in. Mm. So, that, you know, obviously basic technology back then, but now I'm mm. sure. Well, we did um, – we we done a lot of phone intercepts back in, and it's 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 not so much a big secret these days. No, I mean, it's, it's just it's, open slather. Common knowledge. Common knowledge. So um, we were uh, we were tapping phones when I was in the druggies at, at mm. Wagga, um, putting listening devices in in cars and houses, um, and it's really interesting work. It's it's sometimes quite mundane, but um, listening in on the private conversations of of these hardened criminals, well, in some respects, sometimes it's troubling because. It's unfiltered. There's no filter in what you listen mm. to, and some of the environments some of these kids are getting brought up in. You just want to go down there and flog fuck out of it at people who are are in there putting these kids through this sort of stuff. But obviously, you just got to suck it up and and, and keep your your head in in the game. But um, so I'd been doing that for a long period of time, but it sort of became a bit of a staple for us as, as an investigative tool. And it was mainly because, like years earlier, they brought in an evidence act where you had you you couldn't admit any evidence against a, um, a, a suspect unless it had been recorded electronically. So it was either through interviews or, or through phone taps and stuff like that. Before then, uh, if they said something to you in the police car on the way back. Nothing. Yeah, you, you can't you, use you, it. What, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. before then you could. You could write it down. Oh, you notebook. could, yeah. yeah you oh, you could, could. yeah, but, gotcha. But, but after the evidence that you couldn't use it anymore. Uh, so then everything had to be electronic. So that's why we started doing a lot more uh, electronic surveillance for, for yep, a brief of evidence. Gotcha. So, um, but they're so time consuming too, those jobs, but they're, they're very insightful. You get, you get a real bird's eye view of how things run. It's not just about what you see out there as a cop in the street mm. and see how they behave. You're, you're like, a fly on the wall. You're a fly on the wall. You, you actually get everything mm. broken down in the way they operate, the way they think, the hierarchy, their structures. So, um, so I had a really good understanding of the way bikey gangs work by the time I went down to Coffs Harbour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've had someone previously on... Uh, I can't remember if it was Australian or American, but they'd literally go and do a job, break into the bikey's compound, s- put the devices yeah. in, break back out the exact same way, make it look like nothing's ever happened. And Incredible work. They'd, they'd, it's, the guys who did that Multiple arrests right. out of it. Yeah, huge. Yeah. It's, um, so I always took my hat off to them for having the balls and the audacity to be like putting themselves into the, into the lairs of, of, the, of our, our, our opposition. And, um, for me, running those jobs, particularly in regional areas, I was in charge of making sure they stay safe. Mm. So, you know, maybe we're putting a, a device in someone's house. Well, I'd make sure they didn't come home. So, otherwise, if they got compromised and injured, that would that would be on me. Um, so, it was there was it was action packed. It was high adrenaline stuff uh, making getting these jobs done. But then we'd have then we'd have the downtime sitting there listening in on all this stuff, and it was a lot of times you just bored shitless. Especially they went away for a couple of days. Yeah, think, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> trying to trying to stay awake, but um, but then you know when things were on, they were really on as well. So, um, but it was really interesting because like over those years, I built up a, uh, a an ability to be able to detect. They they know we we listen in the phone calls, right? So they come up with codes and all that sort of thing. And and you after a while, you start to work out how to break those codes down and and um, and understand what they're saying. But then you've got to go through the process of being able to prove what those codes actually mean to down the track. So it was just super interesting work, um, super invigorating. I just got – I was so hooked on it 
and it was mainly probably because of that thrill of the hunt thing and the the reward from from you know the mental reward you get from hunting them down and and, and getting the win, um, but also the adrenaline side of things too. I, mm. I was just so all the mental health stuff I was doing with and aside, I think um, one of the things that really kept me going was the adrenaline it's of the, the police job. work. Yeah, yeah it just yeah. kept me fired up. It gave me gave me an opportunity to escape. All those things, all those demons I was dealing with in secret. So, like it was when you first joined up, where you would, it wasn't a job; it was just like, "Fuck, this is oh, like a, it's like a hobby." Everything else went yeah. went out the window. It was yeah. I became so fixated, um, which caused a lot of problems at home too. And that's that's common for a lot of um, cops. You know, it's marriages are we got a high attrition rate. That, yeah. that work mindset. Yeah, it's yeah. Hard, and it's hard to it, it's really hard to describe how difficult it is to. Um, to be plugged into the adrenaline socket of law enforcement, dealing with sort of the things that we sort of deal with, and then try to transition at the end of a shift back to domestic life, um, and then back again. It's 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 so. It'll be difficult. the hardest thing for police, and I've spoken about this previously with multiple other guests. You know, I guess the difference with the military is that you know we go overseas for six, seven, eight, four, three, whatever months, but you have a little bit of time to decompress, or you know, it, and then you're back to training for a few months. So it's just you reintegrate back into society where it's cops, you know, you could be on your job at a fucking domestic, at a, at a murder and then taking your kid to ballet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, and then <laughs> it's, it's funny cause yeah, that was, that was, uh, that's what uh, Ben said, officer A, you know, he was at Link Cafe, literally that night he was at his daughter's ballet buddy thing. It's crazy. People are it? talking about it next to him. He's just like, Fuck that was oh, I nailed that bloke. That was me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> fuck, he, yeah. So it's just it's incredible. It is hard, it's, and it's um, you know, I, I guess I I I failed a lot in but in managing that transition. Mm. So you know, over those years, I, I'd um, and I think it depends on your relation to you know if you're married and, and the strength of that relationship. And um, like I I never shared anything about what I did at work, at home. It was partly, you know, my wife at the time, we're, we're divorced now. And, and um, What was she doing as a job? So she she was basically staying home mum for a yeah, lot of the time. Yep, and then yep. when the kids went to school, she just doing admin work yep, for yep. Um, one of the public sector jobs. But um, so totally opposite mm. sort of thing to, to what I was doing. And um, thankfully she didn't ask too many questions. Um, but if, if she had, if, if I shared a lot more as well, um, she might have understood a lot of, like I was a big drinker, I was going out a lot after work and probably neglecting my marriage in a major way. Um, so she might have un- at least understood, but I, I'm definitely not alone in, in so far as part of the reason why I wouldn't share is that that was what I did at work. That was the, that was the the evil side of humanity out there. At home, it was my sanctuary. It was what where I could, like you know, go back, have some sort of respite, and I didn't want to poison my my sanctuary with by bringing in the stories of the stuff I was dealing with out there. So, it is a really difficult thing to try to manage that transition be, between domestic life and the professional side of things. But um, I, I honestly did not do a very good job of it, um, and I don't blame myself. I don't. I don't say that with any sense of self pity or anything. It was just you know I got dealt a, a set of cards. And I played them as best I could. I, I tried to survive it, and that's basically the way I did it. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was really tricky trying to manage that. Yeah, of course, mate. Booze never helps as well. Oh, totally. But it was yeah. sort of the booze was a that 
that camaraderie and everything we talked about in the exactly. adrenaline socket, it was an extension of that. Yeah. It was sort of – and a part of that was to um, – I really felt like my workmates were the only people in the world who truly understood me. So that's why I wanted to spend more time when it didn't matter if it was at work or at the pub afterwards. It was where I could truly be myself. And um, so that was a, an attraction to it, but also the grog – um, when it comes to your mental health, especially, you know, I was already unhinged. Um, adding alcohol to the system doesn't help. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Mm. All right, mate, let's take a quick break. So you get your promotion and uh, move to Coffs. Yeah. We sort of um, – I'd, I'd fought the promotion system pretty regularly. I had even knockbacks and whatever, and I really wanted to my, – my career goal was to be a detective sergeant. I really looked up to all mine in my early years and, and um, that's where I wanted to head and eventually got that promotion, won a detective sergeant position down at uh, Coffs Harbour running a, what they call target action groups, which is basically looking after volume crime, robberies and, and drug crime and stuff like that. Um, and it was uh, – that was probably one of the proudest moments of my career, getting, getting that rank and um, – Basically, what my job was there, uh, we had a decimated unit. A lot of people had been off sick with psychological injuries and the unit of basically 14 people was down to two. And um, so I had to rebuild that unit. And what was really exciting about it was uh, it was target action groups were used as a, a training ground. Like I did my A-list, uh, sorry, the, the uh, anti-theft squad in, in A-district before I became a detective. Um, it was the same sort of thing. Target action groups were a good opportunity for uniformed guys to come in, work in plain clothes, and then there was a gateway to becoming a detective down the track. And so it was a real uh, responsibility for me that I relished having all these young cops coming in under my wing and training them up to be exactly what, what I'd become. Uh, it was so, I was so proud to be able to do that. So we did a lot of drug work over that period of time, a lot of volume crime, a lot of strike forces as well over that period. Yeah, right. Sorry, just uh, a New South Wales police numpty like myself got no fucking idea when it comes to rank structure. Detective Sergeant, look, are you in charge of? Yeah, a team. Yeah, yep. so basically it's, it's a team leader role. Um, so I had, uh, I think it was about nine staff uh, at Coffs Harbour and another three uh, operatives up at, at Grafton that I was yeah, gotcha. running. So and who's above you? Uh, Detective Inspector. Inspector, yeah, yeah gotcha. Yep. Now I've got it. Yeah, sweet. No, I've never had no idea who. Uh, yeah. Here are all these ranks. Um, I think I had uh, Marley Briggs on from South Australia. He's a detective brevet sergeant and all these weird ranks that I've got. Oh, yeah. I don't need a half the military ranks either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was an awesome opportunity because apart from that, like I, I'd let myself go over the years too. I, I was really fit when I joined the cops. And then um, and then when, when I went in the druggies at Wagga mm. for, for about a – Eight ten year period, I'd sort of put on a lot of weight. I'm a big boy; yeah, I can I can carry it, but I wasn't particularly proud of my condition. And then when I started, when I took over the target action group, I was working with all these young cops. Mm. They didn't share my poor eating habits. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't drink as much. Um, they they exercised, and I sort of I think they sort of inspired me to tidy myself up a lot. And um, it probably added some years of duration to my career because. I got really heavily into exercise again. Um, so I started training at the gym on a regular basis at PCYC. I was surfing before work, um, many mornings before, before, before I went to work. I uh, took up boxing and I was boxing a couple of days a week as well. And um, and I really trimmed down and got myself mm. in good shape, um, which which helped me mentally as well over a period of time. Of course, yeah. Yeah, massive, a massive difference. And um, so that was a good – that was one of the good offside parts of that that actually they rubbed off on me. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. Like, 
Yeah. yeah, not your typical cake eater detective. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I think I got up to about, so I was not 79 kilos when I joined the the, the, the police as a yeah. nine year old. And I got up to about 114 kilos Holy or something shit. like that. And it wasn't. Like a full on and mate, cheap wiggum. And it wasn't my brother as muscle. It was like I was carrying, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't rotund. I've got a bit, I've got a big frame like him, but it was sort of, uh, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't. I look back yeah, at some right. of those photos now and I'm absolutely appalled. <laughs> I'll never let myself get back like that again. But um, it was good to tidy up and but, it was sort of made me feel a bit more formidable too. I, yeah. I, you know, it was all yeah. the people I was dealing with and, and particularly when I started boxing, um, you know, I, I really felt more confident in doing my work, having that skill set behind me. I had a really good instructor. Trained me up to the point where um, I was going to get in the ring for, mm. for, for an amateur fight and um, there was a few family things that happened before and, and, and that sort of derailed that whole plan. But the skills I learnt – Oh, like the confidence I had in going out and confronting some pretty dangerous people was totally different. When did that weight gain start? That started uh, when I was over at Wagga, had, had our first child and, and like a lot of dads, things start going down, downhill after you. Yeah, dad bots, dad bots, yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but it didn't help the fact when I was in the drug squads, probably where it really started happening because we're on the road all the time. I was, uh, you know, living out of pubs and cars and that's basically it. We're just eating pub food, drinking lots of beer on the road, doing it, all the jobs we're doing. And uh, I wasn't – once I gave up rugby, um, that, about the age of 30, that's where things started going downhill. And it wasn't until I was probably – I'd say when I got myself tidied up again – by the time I was 38, I was probably at the best condition I've ever been in my life. Like I was, had had built myself up through the weight training but also doing all the boxing and surfing. I was, I was really fit and quite proud of the way I was. Now, in, in regards to that uh, health, I guess, crisis, that doesn't help with the mental state. You know, all those – all that fatty foods, it's all affecting the brain and it's just not healthy. And well, I guess – that also amplified, I guess, that PTSD side of things as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was um, I was counteracting a lot of stuff I was dealing with by intentionally maintaining massively high levels of stress, you know, just to get that adrenaline hit. But um, I, I didn't understand back then about how stress worked and how the adrenaline, cortisol, all those stress chemicals and can um, – can really bring you undone burnout and a lot of other things. Um, and exercise is one of the best ways you can actually burn those things off and, and manage your stress levels. And so definitely it was uh, – there were periods of time I look back in hindsight and I probably – although it wouldn't have been a, like a, a big diagnosis, I, I probably look back in hindsight. There were various times throughout that period where I was quite unhealthy that I, I probably had little periods of depression as, as well when I had – you know, going through my – periods where I was quite burnt out. Um, and, and you know, when, when I started doing all this physical exercise in, in TAG, when I, was, I took that over, got myself into shape, I just, um, as much as I was still having a lot of, lot of trouble, um, I was managing it just a little bit better. Um, it definitely gave me more legs to keep going. Over that time, did you ever run into your brother? Yeah. A, yeah. a bit? Like, did you just work uh, together? No. Look, a good, really good story with that about yeah. one of the proudest moments of my whole career uh, it was back when I did that outcast shooting investigation. Um, we had uh, well, we had witnesses and wit- witness protection and stuff like that. But we had eventually tracked down the, the, the president of the gang who'd, who'd actually organised this this ambush, this shooting, and uh, he was in a safe house in Sydney. 
and uh, had to get the tactical operations guys to to effect the arrest um, because it was high risk. And we knew this guy had armed security with him in in the safe house. Um, anyway, we did the uh, made contact with with a negotiator in the morning. I was in, I was in the command post when they did it in a car, and he, as usual, as soon as he heard it was the cops, hung up the phone, and then straight away they they, they put a plan into action. What I didn't know was um, early that morning, um, like four o'clock in the morning before the sun came up, they had a sniper, you know, crawling his way through long grass. In, it was this is in farmland, Western Sydney, um, crawling through paddocks, long grass in a ghillie suit, and then setting up a sniper position on, on the house. When they eventually got got our bikey um, in handcuffs, they, they uh, called us down to do the handover. So I rocked up there and, and, and grabbed our bloke and did the usual formalities. And I look across and I see this yowie walking towards me in this in the ghillie suit, massive. Like he's six – you met him. He's a big boy. Mm. And in a ghillie suit, he's even bigger and scarier. And he had this um, – I can't remember what sort of sniper rifle he had, but it was he had that slung over his shoulder. And he's walking towards me and, and it wasn't until he cracked a smile that like his, his face was all painted up in camo and everything and – I realised it was my brother, and uh, and like I gave him the biggest hug, and it was one of the proudest moments of my career that that we we'd managed to turn up the same job together uh, in different roles. Like we had parallel parallel roles in law enforcement, him with the tactical side, me with the investigative side. We were both operating at, at an elite level, and um, to turn up that same job was just one of the proudest moments of my career that mm. we, that we did that. And it, look, a little side story on that. It also you know, it was, it was a little bit of fate involved in it as well. It, that that same morning, so I, I, here I am. I'm living up on the north coast, so far from Sydney. It's not funny, but I happened to be in Sydney with my brother doing this this tactical um, job on this bikey gang. And then while I was still out doing the search warrant on on the house, Mum rings and says, um, "You need to get to Newcastle ASAP. Your pop's dying." So this this is the my role model in my life, and and for my brother. So told my brother, he picked me up, off we went, we headed straight up to Newcastle, walked into the hospital and Pop just could not understand how my brother and I, at such short notice, me from Grafton, him from Sydney, had walked in together into the hospital. And um, he was so proud of us with what we were doing in, in law enforcement and, and I just walked up to him and said, Pop, would you believe it, Jason and I are doing the same job today. We went and locked up a bikey. Jason brought the guns. I brought the handcuffs, and yeah. he was so he, he even he was dying. He was on on a bed, and he was, but he smiled. He was just so so happy to see that. So it's amazing how fun funny mm. how things work um, like that. It was just like any other any other day, and he and I would have been all, all over the place. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, so it was it was yeah quite um, profound that whole. What whole year episode. was this? Two thousand and four. Yeah, gotcha. That, when that happened, so that was going back a bit. But it's yeah. probably the only time. I mean, we, we apart from that Fink's job where we, we fired the ferret round in that that, mm. that, that by bus, um, and we we sort of socialised each other after jobs and whatever. But never, never really worked on too many jobs uh, together. Never really crossed paths too many times. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Now, mate, uh, moving into two thousand nine, Newcastle. Now, this is uh, it was prominent news. I'm a I'm a massive football head. Love my Brisbane Broncos, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, far out. There's been a lot of Drug talk about the Broncos over the years, yeah, uh, and the NRL in general. Um, now you're involved in the NRL drug bust. 
Yeah, it was, um, I mean, how we get involved in drug dealing that involves um, NRL players based in Newcastle. Um, well, I'm, I'm up in Grafton. It was basically one of their players, first grade player um, named Danny Wicks, um, was uh, he's from Grafton and his family are up there. And, and um, anyway, my, my operatives up in Grafton were, were getting some information that they were involved in this this drug dealing network syndicate basically operating from Newcastle to, to Grafton. And long story short, we kicked off the job and, and um, we got, got phones tapped um, of, of Danny and, and also his brother and, and a couple of others. And, and we sort of sat back on it and, um, and, and watched it all unfold after over a six to eight month period. I can't remember exactly how long we were, we were doing that sort that surveillance work on them, but, you know, it gave me a real insight into how, prevalent um, and how big a problem that illicit drug use in general in, in elite sports is. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really under the table a lot. It's only when there's a bit of a scandal that it'll blow up in the media and people start asking questions about it. But gave me a real insight into a lot of things with regards to drugs in sport, including firstly the compromise of the players themselves. It's sort of – I know um, – I don't know what it is. I think it's just mainly because – this is just my personal opinion, is that um, from, from from looking as an outsider in at the lives of these these footballers, they've got way too much time on their hands. And money. And they're cashed up. Mm. And they're bored a lot of the time. So they've got and, – and Young as well. They're young, they're reckless. And, and I, I know what I was like back then. Mm. You know, my, my drug of choice is alcohol, mm. um, but some of my behaviour when I was out on the booze was – like questionable looking back then because you're young and you're stupid. You don't think about consequence. Um, but with these guys, it was mainly cocaine and ecstasy uh, that the, the things that we were coming up with. And um, for me, that, I don't think they understand fully the consequence of what what they're actually doing. Not just for themselves, not just for their clubs, but for their sport in general. Um, I mean, when when they're coming into associations with criminals who are drug dealers, right? So um, some of these these people that, that they're involved with are organised crime figures, bikies and, and others as well. Some of ours were um, ethnic crime crime groups that they were, they were mixed up with. They're basically, they're not only compromising themselves, they're compromising their teammates, but they're also compromising the sport. And because once they, they get these these drug dealers and organised crime figures, get their, 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 um, their claws in, they're, they're tapped into their network. They get information on sports, and I'm saying this happened in our job, but they do get information on sport events and with gambling and all, all, all those sort of things too. And they're basically compromising the sport itself through their connections in the, the criminal world that they're associating in. And that's where I think the big problem is with it. It's not just the drug use. It's just the networks of people that they start mm. getting coming into contact with. And that's where I think um, some of these big sporting organisations really need to focus their attention um, it's, and cause I, I know they look at it, um, as they should, because drug addiction is a mental illness as well. And it needs to be looked at from a welfare point of view, but, um, you've got to be careful how much leash you, you also give in that welfare space. Um, and I think they got a little bit too much. <laughs> I think, uh, something recent, uh, in the past few months, uh, you know, they've shown leniency towards 
drug use in the NRL, which is not not a good thing. Well, it, was but, just, it was just one of those things. Well, like, the amount of players, without going in, I'm not going to mm. name the people. I, I just don't want to create a shit storm. I'd rather deal without. Like, but um, the amount of players that we detected as being regular users of cocaine and ecstasy. I mean, if that happened in any other workplace, it would be deemed a crisis for sure. Mm. And for some reason, you know, they, a lot of these these organisations know what's going on, but they're happy just to uh, like just throw a blanket over it of whenever course. it rears its head. It's money. It's so <laughs> it's that's that the media. Money. It's media. It's media. So, money. Power. Government. It's incredible. It's, yeah. You know, yep. the government probably could take action, but they don't no. because they know that's. Yeah. Anyway, now how, how does this come across your table? Like you know this job. Yeah. Like where like. One, one Who's of the, Danny? One, like I know a little bit about the story, but where where does he make his connects? Where is he getting these drugs from? Oh, so he was tapped into a um, uh, an ethnic crime gang here down in, in Newcastle, and they're, they're not just in Newcastle, but they had a big big network here. And uh, I don't know how he actually this all started for him. I had no idea, um, and I've never really sat down with him and talked about it, to be quite honest. And um, but all I know is that um, you know he allowed this. Going back a little bit, I think a lot of it um, happens because uh, these guys, when they get all connected with gangsters and whatever, it pumps them up, makes mm. them feel like they're tough guys and, you know, I, I know all these people and, and whatever, and um, which is a bit disappointing. But he was sort of – he was associating with the, with uh, Gladiators, Outlaw, Mosul Gang as well in, in various levels as, with that. Um, but it was mainly all these – a lot of the jobs that we run um, – we, we get information and, and my, my bread and butter tool over all the years of being a detective was having criminal informants out there and, and there's no secret that that's what we do. Um, um, it's the same. I've, I've seen cops roll over on cops in the past. Everyone's got a price. Uh, it's just a matter of finding it and um, and for me, my bread and butter tool for all my investigations over the years, particularly with drugs, was, was actually having a really good network of informants. So you get information over time and, and then you sort of follow it down all the different rabbit holes it might take you. And that's basically what happened with, with Danny's job as well. Started out pretty low level, uh, but the, the more we got into it and the more we followed it, the more rabbit holes we, we went down, the bigger it got um, to the point where we had to bring in some of the detectives down here in Newcastle to help out because it was just getting too big for us to handle. But we had to be really careful with how many people were involved in the job because of the high-profile nature of our targets. The, um, it was just so much risk of uh, of seepage, of, of people finding out that we're actually running this job. Uh, and particularly with, with the league, like there's a lot of lot of um, serving cops that are heavily involved in rugby league and, and, what, and, and, and the word down here in Newcastle. And not that I would ever call into question anyone's integrity. You just don't take the risk. Mm. Um, it's one of those things that even my, my own crew, because I, I basically i am the team leader, but I had to take myself largely offline to do this job with with the guy that I was working with at, at Grafton. And even my team members would be saying to me, like, what are you working on? What's You're off doing secret squirrel stuff. What's what's happening? And, and I'd say to them, um, well, if I tell you, and then this job gets blown because someone's opened their mouth, do you want to be the person that they come looking at when they do the internal affairs investigation? And they just go, oh, okay, don't want to know then. So we had to keep it so secret. Like he and I, when we worked that job up together, worked out of my um, rumpus room in my, in my house. Like we weren't even working it up at, at the police station. We, we were totally yeah, right. offline to get it done. It yep. was just so much, the secrecy to it and the, and the confidentiality, how tight we had to keep it was just beyond anything I'd ever, ever worked on before. 
I mean, with bikies and stuff like that, you can you can work openly in your office and everyone can know because you trust your workmates and not going to say anything. But with this, there was just too much risk of someone knowing somebody, um, particularly down here in Newcastle, where it's a pretty small town. It's a it's yeah. big. Everyone but knows small. everyone. Everyone yeah. knows everyone, and, and so it was. Um, so it was very interesting. It was very. It was, it was a real uh, delicate balancing act between making sure we could get the job done, but doing it with the least amount of people knowing about it, which was it was a balancing act in itself. What was the result? Yeah, we ended up. Uh, we charged. Danny with um, some serious amphetamine dealing charges. There was a lot of other drug stuff as well. Um, charging with with uh, dealing out heaps of heaps of uh, like a large amount of ecstasy over the Mad Monday celebrations that the team had, and uh, we I think it was about eight people we we charged originally with a whole heap of serious drug charges, including his brother um, and one of the organised crime figures down here in Newcastle. There's two of them, including another football player. Who were acquitted at, at uh, down the track. Um, so six were convicted. J- Danny went to jail for I think it was about eighteen months. And from, from what I gather, uh, not that I keep track on it, but I've, I have heard over time he's he's doing really well with his life now. He's sort of doing some great stuff up there on the north coast, which is that's also good to hear. That's good, mate. That's good. Now from here back into the bikey side of things. Mm. You can't stay away, no. mate. You can't stay away. <laughs> you far out, mate. Yeah. So strike force is it? So this is where all these strike forces start mm. coming into play with the New South Wales Police. Is a bit more structure within, yeah, the organised crime. So with strike forces, um, the reason we set them up is mainly to manage the administrative side of, of the investigations. And it's um, so you get a com- computer generated code word for, you, for you. so for um, for uh, for Danny's job with the NRL, I think it was Strike Force Wellham or something like that, and and for this next one with the lone wolves, it was Strike Force Oriental. Uh, so they're, they're, we don't make up the names. The computer oh, don't spits, you? No, nah, computer spits them out. Oh, it's so, like, yeah. like the old uh, nah, rap, rap would, name generator on Google. Up, I would have come up with something far more creative. Than I know, Oriental. Oriental, bloody hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> it sounds like we're doing an Asian organised crime job. But it was, yeah. yeah. Absolutely was not. So, um, look, I, what had happened, I, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd run three teams. So I run a tenure, those, these recruits that I'd run through the tag and train them up and, and look, so many of them, about 30 of those guys over a period of the three teams that I ran through over their set tenure periods, like a, they'd, they'd get to their two years and then they'd out and I'd get a new team and train them up and then they'd be out. And it was um, some of the proudest moments of my whole career was when those guys that I'd trained actually became qualified detectives like me. It was like leaving a legacy, um, which was something really special. But about the five year, it was only just after um, doing the, the, the job on Danny Weeks and the NRL stuff, I started to get a bit burnt out and a bit tired again. I think it was just that that continual doing the same stuff. I've always been one of those blokes. So I don't think I've ever sat in the one seat for more than six years and I've had to move on to somewhere else. Anyway, um, I had the boss had offered me a detective sergeant's position at Coffs Harbour, so it was only sideways move, but it was back to CI doing serious, serious criminal investigation work and – and um, and I sort of took it on because, like like I said before, I, I was burying myself in my work and chasing the adrenaline and and neglecting the family to a large degree. And and I, I thought, well, if I can go back to the detectives now, I can just manage investigations of other people and not go out and be so active in, in my own. Um, but I mean, it was only two months after going back into the CI 
had my first homicide again. Um, and this, there was a brutal murder of an Indigenous lady up at um, up at uh, Iluka, up on a beach up there, which is pretty well documented in the media. But so I was straight back into it. I was out there just worrying to think of it again. So so much for sitting back and managing mm. investigations with others. But um, but it was around that same time that murder happened. There was an armed robbery on a on a tr- cash and transit security guard. Up, up in Coffs Harbour, and that's right, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it was, it, um, yeah. it was an inside job. Like the information had, yep. had come through, yep. and, and these guys had had targeted him, and they got away with a lot of money. And um, but there was something about when I was watching the CCTV footage of the stick up, I, I, I was just looking. These guys had had intentionally. It's middle of summer, and and Coffs Harbour in the middle of summer is humid, it's hot. Um, these guys had wore, wore full tracksuits over tracksuits to try and hold hide their physiques uh, because they were like bodybuilder steroid type um, and tattoos that they had and fully yeah. covered in tattoos, right? And um, look, I didn't exactly know when I was watching that that footage who'd done it, but straight away I had two suspects and it was mainly because it was just their mannerisms, the way they moved, the, the, the differences in their height together, um, everything is sort of – there was two lone wolf bikey gang members who who were, were jumping out at us, and um, anyway, the get a, getaway car that was used, they it was a car that wasn't stolen, but they'd stolen number plates off similar cars the night before and put those plates on. And the next day, or the day after, I think it was one or two days after the stick up, one of those two was driving a car that was identical to to the one that was used in the stick up in in just about every way and so it really started to to narrow in on these two and it, what started out to just be a like a an investigation in one armed robbery which once again I could have asked someone else to investigate but I just couldn't help myself and just sort of jumped in on it the more we looked into it um, we started to uncover a whole lot of other stuff that was going on in town and you know just that one simple act of investigating one armed robbery started you know, getting out and talking Branching to informants yep. and all that sort of yep. stuff. We started going down rabbit holes again. And before we knew it, we, we sort of coming across this, the lone wolf at the time up there were recruiting and they were trying to expand and they were very powerful. They were the dominant gang in our area. And I'd, I'd worked on them a couple of times before, but it, normally in regional areas with those, with these sort of jobs here, with your limited resources, when it, when it started to rear its head, you go and pick out, two or three of the main antagonists, you go and lock them up, put them away, settle it down for a while, and then the same thing would happen down the track. But um, – and that's what we had been doing with these guys. But the more we looked into them, the more we saw that we sort of largely um, were flying blind. We didn't realise there was a whole under-the-table crime wave going on in our command with home invasions on drug dealers, people getting seriously hurt. None of it's reported to the cops. You only find out about it through criminal networks. And, and so um, – I'd been become quite manic in the way I was doing my job, you know, for the reasons we've already talked about, and and uh, and I was always looking for the next big, the big next big challenge, the next next big job, and the next one would need to be bigger. So I was sort of quite manic in the way I was doing my job. But we we were lucky to get a uh, huge influx. We had a um, a review of our authorized strength there, and basically doubled our numbers and our detectives overnight. And that sort of gave me an opportunity for the first time to say. You know, while we've got these numbers and and they don't have a huge workload, this is an opportunity we could do something big and meaningful on this gang. So the plan was, I went to my boss and I said, "Mate, um, I'd like to actually run a big job and and try to shut down the whole chapter, all twenty five members of this bikey gang, just do a big job and lock them all up." 
and settle this whole thing down once and for all. And um, the plan was that I took to him was that it involved heaps of patience. It involved a lot of risk. Um, but the plan was to to run a, a, a covert job and rather than just going out when we got enough evidence on a, on a bike in and arresting them, what, what the plan was was to to get that evidence, do get what you needed for the brief and then file it and put it in a cupboard and then keep working away and working away until we got enough evidence on each and every single one of those members so that we could lock them all up and shut it all down in one big arrest phase. So that was the plan. And that I don't think that had ever been done in regional New South Wales because you just generally don't have the resources to do it. So it was a pretty risky plan and it, and it involved a lot of risk, particularly when you've got um, – some of the, some of our targets were really unhinged, evil people uh, who, while we might have had enough evidence to go and arrest them for an offence, we couldn't do it because we compromised the job. They would understand. Well, hang on a minute, the cops are working on us. Let's everyone go to ground. But letting them run was of risk as well, particularly when they were you know, effectively hurting people. Mm. So it was a pretty big investigation. Um, we, we got taken offline. Me and, it was only me and two other detectives were working on it for the bulk of the job um, and and we had phones tapped. We had listening devices in their cars, uh, in, in a house, listening to conversations and had got our undercover, undercover operatives involved in it, getting out, infiltrating, buying drugs for our brief of evidence and tactically from time to time we'd have to go and do a raid um, and I always found myself making sure I was first through the door, uh, often with a sledgehammer and it and it wasn't because I wanted to be a hero. I just – I was always trying to find um, – I wanted to be at the place of most risk so I'd get that adrenaline hit through through doing that sort of thing. But it was a full-on job. Like we worked on it for 18 months straight and um, the last nine months of the job, I effectively didn't have a day off because I was commanding this job. I always had people in the field 24-7. They're always ringing, mate, this has happened. We need a decision. So there was never any downtime. And, you know, leading on from all the problems I'd had for the last eight or nine years as well, I wasn't sleeping very well. It was two or five hours sleep a night I'd, I'd get on a regular basis and, and it was pretty – over time it was really wearing me down. But this job was pretty um, – it was probably the most challenging job I've ever run in my whole career. Um, there was a lot of personal and professional risk with it, um, particularly letting these people run and while we were getting all the evidence. But look, we eventually had it all. We got it all together and um, and then we went did the arrest phase. So got 100 cops together early one morning. Um, we, we had one last little undercover job we had to do um, with, a, with buying a significant amount of amphetamine from one of these guys. And um, once we got that, it was all game on the next day. So, yeah. Yeah, right. And so that led to 13 early morning raids. Yeah, we, so we had um, – we, we, it was a logistical nightmare, but we had that many cops. We had actually had to roster a uniformed bloke to do traffic duty that morning when we were getting everyone sorted out for the briefing. And it was at a we had a briefing at a, the local airport out there, and um, it was pre dawn. It was it was four or five o'clock in the morning. It was really dark. Simultaneous. Yeah. So we got them all together and, and yep. did did the briefing, and, and then we sent. Um, so we had Raptor, the, the bikey squad. We had. Um, had tactical guys like from a brother's unit. We had uh, drug dogs, firearm dogs, everything. Everything that we needed was there. Um, and we sent them all out to do 13 raids across our region. They all had to be done um, pinpoint accuracy with timing to make sure nothing was compromised. Um, it was There was a lot of risk involved in that. Um, and, and look, at that point, 
even though I was commander in the investigation, all of a sudden I was just the, the team leader of one small team doing one small job, which was one raid on physically the biggest member of their bikey gang. He was a Pacific, Pacific Islander and I've never met a bloke so big where I've never been able to get his hands around behind his back to handcuff him. I had to use two sets of handcuffs to actually get this bloke, you know, shackled. And, um, but we got them all. It was just like a, a rolling parade of bikies through the charge room that day. No, no one had ever seen anything like it. It was, uh, I think we locked up about 15 bikies that day. And overall it was about 25 over the period of the job. And, um, and even though they're back up and operating now for a long period of time, they were just basically shut down the whole lone wolf job and it was um, the most successful job I'd ever run in my career. And without doubt, promotions were around the corner. You know, I was getting tapped on the shoulder. Bosses encouraged me to, you know, apply for commission officers' positions and stuff like that. Um, But it was only about four or five weeks after we did those raids that I had had my, what a lot of cops call a flame out, basically a, a, a breakdown, a mental breakdown, and that was pretty much the finish of me. Flat out for 18 months. Mm. Successful as a motherfucker. Yep. And then six to, you know, say five, six weeks later. Broken. Candle's fucking out. Out. Gone. Run us through that six weeks off. What, what, did, were you in the office still working? Yeah. Or did so, you, yeah. It, they was give incre- you some it was incredible to look back on it. It was um, like I'd been unwell for a long, long time. Um, but I managed to sort of using all those maladaptive coping strategies, mm. alcohol, stress, adrenaline, just to keep a lid on it. But – what happened was I remember the day of the raids, um, I got up to do my briefing. So a couple of commanders had their chop and they, they throw, threw it over to me, to all these cops to inspire them to go out there and, and, and get stuck in. And I remember like standing in front of all those cops in that briefing room and for the first time I didn't have that massive rush of excitement, you know, with that briefing and I felt quite flat. And I remember um, – and I couldn't work out what it was. I, I just had no idea what was going on with me that morning. And when I uh, when we when we were doing all the charging at the police station, I remember looking at my office window and I looked down in the courtyard. And uh, a few of the uniform blokes had brought in this massive framed portrait of a lone wolf head. And um, and I, I, I looked. Oh, this is a perfect opportunity. So I got my team, my, the two guys I've worked this through with, who our bonds were just unbelievable after doing this job together. It's something you never forget for the rest of your life. And See, so let's get down and get our photo taken with that 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 um, frame. And uh, I look at that photo now, and I look at it, and everyone looking at me that day, and they were looking at me at that photo. No one could have had a clue how I was actually mm. feeling because I had a massive smile on my face. I looked like I was larger than life, on top of the world. Um, but actually, when that photo was taken, I, I felt really flat, and I felt nothing positive for what we just achieved. And the normal levels of euphoria that I would normally experience after a job like that were non-existent, and it really worried me. That night, we're out on the town having a few beers, you know, doing the the victory roll, and guys are yelling out speech, speech, and I just nothing felt. I just didn't feel inspired. Or, and basically, what happened from there on in, every day got worse over the next four to four to five six weeks. Um, my mood plummeted so hard and fast. There was nothing I could do to stop it. I was getting, and, and I was, my sleep went from two to five hours for a night, almost to zero, having panic attacks during, at night while I was in bed, then having the front up, put my gun on, get out there, lock up another couple of bikies or interview witnesses or whatever. I was having a lot of trouble like putting on the facade and, and it was taking so much energy to actually fake it that I was actually doing okay, but I wasn't. Um, 
But look, in the end, over that that period of time, I, I, I just went down so hard. Eventually, I thought to myself, mate, you've, you've lost control of this now. Now you need to actually do something about it. Got online and checked up a few things on Black Dog website, and and um, and I did a couple of online tests, and, and it was all saying, mate, <laughs> this isn't good. You're in <laughs> yeah. trouble. So I made an appointment with our EAP provider, and that's a bit hit and miss sometimes with EAP, but they I oh, got lucky, and they said, what what is that? EAP is an employee assistance program where yep. you confidentially can ring up and get put in touch with this a, through the psychologist. Yeah, yep, yep, and and a lot of workplaces have got it. Um. And they put me in touch with a clinician, thankfully, that was really trauma-informed, which is so important in this space. Um, You've got, you got to – the clinician's got to have a, a real good um, knowledge of your particular psychological challenges and trauma, particularly with trauma, is such a big thing. And I got really lucky. And and she told me some things in, that, in doing the assessment. So like I got a diagnosis pretty much straight away of – Having severe depression and um, and also some uh, severe anxiety, and they were looking at PTSD as well. They don't rush into diagnosis with that; it takes some time. Anyway, um, I remember going home after that appointment, and I told my wife about it. And I was chopping up veggies in the kitchen. I used to do most of the cooking at home. So this is you're remarried? No, it's, it was I was still married. At that oh yeah, point. Good yeah, yeah, good yeah. Good years good. later, I got I got divorced. Yep. So we actually, my marriage has survived all through through all this stuff, right? And and um, and I remember I was telling my wife about the appointment, just chatting away normally one minute while I was chopping up broccoli and carrots. And, and the next thing, all I remember is I collapsed over the counter and um, and I was howling and bawling and my eyes out like I could not stop. It was just the crying that I was doing was so intense I couldn't breathe from it. And that had never happened to me in my whole career. And so here I was, complete mess, and I was so ashamed as well. I didn't want my wife to see me like that. And, End up getting put to bed without dinner in that that state that night, and the next day, um, I, I was just way too broken to go to work. I just couldn't face it, so I called up work and I went off sick. And uh, I, there was a shift supervisor. I didn't have to talk to any of my workmates. It was shift supervisor. Called off sick. Can't 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 make it, mate. But I didn't I didn't declare mental health problems. It was like you probably yeah. have a gas. It was yeah. like going off with yeah. the flu. Just saying you crook. I've, I've crook. I've got yeah. the flu and. Um, Next day, exactly the same. Chris couldn't face it. Called off sick with the flu again. But thankfully, um, my direct line supervisor, he was a, a detective senior sergeant, so he's one above me. Um, he was also one of my best mates, Radar. And um, he uh, – sometimes it's – the things for us uh, as workmates, peers, colleagues, family members even, sometimes it's just the little things a bit out of character for people as you know them that should get your attention – and that did happen for him. Like, you know, everyone knew, even if I was struggling with pneumonia, I'd be at my desk working. And two days in a row, I'd just gone off sick with the flu. And, and so Radar just thought, hang on, something not right here. Instead of just picking up the phone and, and talking about it over the phone, because I would easily blame him off over the phone. Turned up on the doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He organised. So he dragged me down at a coffee at a coffee shop. And and, uh, and and because of that, I couldn't hide it. He could see it on my face. I was so busted. And so I had to had to fess up to him and I told him what had happened. I had this big mental breakdown, which, by the way, after having uh, a really good psychotherapist mate of mine said, Craig, I often hear you talking about the episode of your mental breakdown. But he said, um, could I suggest you look at it in another way? And I said, how's that, Ernst? And he said, could you describe it as being a mental breakthrough? And I thought, 
it was t- such, such a profound moment because he was right. Now you're fessing up. It needed to happen. Yeah. Right. So, so, um, so radar eventually, I, I was fighting black and blue about taking any time off work. I'd actually been to the doctor the day before and he recommended, he was going to give me a certificate for a month. I said, I can't do it, mate. No way. Um, so he eventually taught me into going to the doctor and I did and I never stepped foot again in a police station as an operational cop. I was just too busted. Fucking hell. Yeah. How long was it uh, after you chat with Radar? Yeah. Yeah. He's <laughs> up, well, he's, it's, it's Pete O'Reilly. Yeah. So he's naturally he gets called Radar yeah. out of MASH. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so how long was that until you, when you fessed up to him? Uh, so it would have been six weeks since we'd, we'd done the bikey job. Yep. And, and, uh, and look, basically I said to him, I said, mate, I can't leave the rest of the crew with this job, putting the brief together and everything. And he said, he basically said to me, he said, Sam's, mate, you got all the evidence. We can put it all together. Just take the time off. And I only thought I'd be off for four weeks and I'd be back better than ever. But over that four weeks, I did relax for a period of time. And but when I started getting close to the end of the four week period where I, I was knew I was going to have to go back to work, I got so anxious and the PTSD sort of kicked in even harder than ever. And um and then I'd go back to the doctor and he'd say, "Mate, no fucking way, you're going back. We'll give you another four weeks off." So that kept happening. But eventually, I had to get to the point where I, I thought, "Can I go back? And do I really want to?" And um, I think part of my reasoning why I didn't go back number one, um was the fact that I thought my, my wife, my marriage is not going to survive if I go back. So a big part of me deciding to leave, apart from the fact I physically, mentally couldn't do it, um, I also wanted to save what was left of my marriage and give it a chance of, of, of holding that, that that together as well. So it was only um, it was only about nine months after we did the lone wolf raids that I was actually medically retired and mm. no longer a cop. And that was a massive and, – and you would probably understand mm. what I'm talking about here and I know a lot of people listening – would understand what I'm talking about too. My, my thought process is up to the, the period where I was going to be medically discharged. Thinking about not ever having to go back to it actually provided me with some relief from all the anxiety that I had with the PTSD over a period of time. It actually provided some relief, not you know, thinking that's going to happen. But once I had that, that I came to that last day of service and, and the next day waking up and knowing I'm no longer a sworn police officer for the first time in my life, it hit me like a truck. It was just that loss of identity that I built up over all those years. No you know, purpose. No purpose anymore. Mm. It's like um, the identity thing is just on a military. Definitely, this would yeah, resonate with, exactly. with a lot of military. Just like personnel. everyone else now, it's huge. And and yeah. even professional it's footballers massive. we're talking about before. You know, they yeah. build up an identity around it, and then suddenly when it's gone, you're lost. It's like someone's taking your soul. Mm. Um, my, my identity as since the age of eighteen was as a detective or effectively a cop but mostly a detective in, in the police force. And, and yours was shut off abruptly. It was so unplanned, yeah, yeah, exactly, unexpected. Exactly. It's not on your own terms. No, definitely not on my own terms. It was uh, – and, and partly, look, I'm very careful never to apportion blame to others about where I ended up because as much as there was a lot of failings in our organisation when it came to welfare and looking after mm. the mental health of your troops – in, in all honesty, I have to take some responsibility myself. What's yeah. your own arrogance but not yeah, speaking ego. about? Yeah, yeah, not speaking up, not going and getting help when I, mm. I knew I had a tr- uh, some problems, especially the nightmares and all the other stuff. I mean, I had one crack at going to the AP, which I talked about, that psychologist after the bikey stuff, right? But I, it was not meaningful. I didn't really give it a good hard crack and go back and maybe try someone else. So, you know, that failure to get help 
um, was a pivotal part of the fact that my career ended way shorter than it should have. Um, I mean, things turn around and, and my life's like going great now, but for a period of time, for three years, I was in a world of hurt. Yeah, so for that three years, obviously your marriage uh, falls apart, mm. um, which is to be expected, yep. but your mental decline is just, it's on the fucking decline still. Yeah. What's, where's Jason? Have you spoken, was, uh, spoken to him about this? Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he and I had shared when when he found out about what happened to me. He 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 had shared some of the, his difficulties for the first mm. time. He'd ever shared some of his difficulties after dealing with everything that he'd been through as well. Um, and if you want to talk about a headstrong human being, oh yeah, Jason Semple. Oh yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no no uh, stronger determination nah. going to find on the planet, but. Um, but he he actually went over, and I think he might have shared this with you. He went over and did mm. some did, did some work overseas, yep. and and so he wasn't in country. What for the majority mm. of the time I was going through my stuff, and and um and and so what had happened? I got I was, I was so unwell. They put me on antidepressants, antipsychotic medication, everything. I was on so many pills. Um, they sent me off to a trauma clinic at Westmead Hospital for three months of pretty intensive treatment. I was flying up and down every week for for that. Um. And for, but basically for that, after I was discharged from the police force, um, my problems only just got worse. It was, you know, on top of depression and, and the PTSD, I now had grief to deal with as well because you, you grieve that lost identity. It's like losing someone close yeah. to you. Um, and I, and because I didn't understand that, I probably didn't process it properly. So it was this real melting pot of multiple, um, mental disorder diagnosis plus the grief and plus my marriage, um, you know, falling in a heap as well uh, over that period of time. And I had a real battle uh, with suicide through that whole three years. And it's an important topic to talk about because we don't talk about of course, it enough. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of, um, as a detective, I had investigated suicides through my whole career. Multiple. Oh, Hundreds. You, you don't even keep track of it. Yeah. It's like at least 60, 70 suicides at least. Um, and nearly all of them are blokes. So seventy six percent of suicides are, are men, mm. um, and for the first time, I understood. Like I never really appreciated what these. I, I pretty wouldn't say I lacked empathy, but I didn't just understand when I turned up to those scenes what these these guys were actually going through. And I thought, you know, surely there was a better answer for them. Surely they could have packed their fishing rods in the car and just taken off on a holiday somewhere. I didn't really understand it. But actually going through my own battle uh, for the first time, I truly understood the level of despair that you're feeling, particularly with depression, um, that you lose a sense of hope and belief in in ever getting well again. Um, and I think that was a critical part for me, is it, especially with my suicidal ideations. So, and, and, and I was never really honest. So if, if I was to give any advice out there about suicide, it would be for those who may be caring for someone else or, or know someone that's struggling – if, you, if, if you're worried about them with suicide, make sure you ask and don't ignore it. Like definitely ask them that question about whether they're thinking about taking their life because you could save them by doing that. And for me as someone who was experiencing that, probably if I, if, if I was to change anything, I would have been a lot more honest when people were asking me about suicide. I wasn't friends. It was always doctors. And this unrealistic fear, it turns out, that if I, if I fessed up to it, that they might have put me in, in hospital and I didn't want that to happen. But as it turns out, that would never have happened. But I was never honest about it. And at the point where my marriage broke down, this is three years down the track, I'd been on this horrible roller coaster with the, the PTSD, anxiety, and then crashing, burning into horrible pits of depression. Marriage fell apart. And then uh, and then I acted on those suicidal thoughts and I, and I ended up in a hospital emergency ward. Um, 
but obviously I'm pretty lucky because I'm sitting here happy as Larry and I'm back to like, having a good successful life now. But, you know, at the end of the day, none of that would have happened if I had have put my hand up all those years earlier. Mm. And it was funny, when I was at the trauma clinic at Westmead, they did two two days of assessment on me before I, I was accepted into the program. And, um, and I said to the doctor, I said, Lucy, if I had actually put my hand up and asked for help, way back when I first started having nightmares before everything else started to creep into my life, would it really have made a difference? And I'll never forget it because I was hoping she'd say, no, it wouldn't have made any difference. But she said, Craig, if you had done that, we could have had possibly this sorted out with about five one-hour sessions. We'd have done exposure therapy and other things with you. We would have looked after you moving forward. You'd still be in the job that you loved. And who knows the situation in your family? Five one-hour sessions. So I sort of thought it was a bit ironic that one of the barriers for me putting my hand up in the first place was I feared losing my career, but that actually happened because I didn't put my hand up. So um, so I've learned a lot from that, and it's one of my main messages when I do my talks in, in front of particularly men's groups um, about the you know the earlier you get on to things, the better the outcomes always are. Mm. I tried to outrun it, and I ended up really, really broken, and I had a lot of stuff, lost a career, lost my marriage, a lot of other things as well as a consequence. So... So that was an important thing. Yeah, of course, mate. And just back to it, 2015, you said you ended up in hospital. Yep. You, you did attempt it. You know, if, again, I've had a couple of guests on that have attempted been in the suicide, same yep. been in the same situation and uh, attempted it and obviously failed or not gone through with it. What's what's going through your mind, mate? Like, so hard. It just, it's, you just, it's just, just defeat. It's just an empty, empty soul. It's just that the people who – People who get to that point in life where they're, where they're considering taking their own life and, and ending it all, they don't want to die. I didn't want to die. I just I couldn't see any other way out of like I'd fought and fought and fought and fought and I was just so tired. I was just so tired and run down and sick of the fight. I just couldn't see any other way out. And it wasn't planned. It was pretty spontaneous. I won't say, you know, how I went into it, how it all happened. But, um, you know, I was, when I was at the hospital though, it was like um, – I was so terrified that I was going to, actually going to die. And and what that meant, if I was so scared of dying, they actually wanted to live. Yeah. There was something left there. And I remember um, one of the guys I used to box with a lot, he uh, he, he was he used to do a lot of my training. And I remember one time when we were boxing, he said, Craig, at the point where you can't lift the gloves up anymore, you're so exhausted, you can't actually lift them to defend yourself anymore. You've actually got another 15% left in you. You just got to find a way to tap into it. And I think I was probably at that point. I couldn't see a way to tap into it, but I still had that little bit left in me. So um, it was a real turning point in 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 that three years that I've been out of the police force. Like it's sad and unfortunate. Some people get to that low point and they don't make it. Um, but I mean, for me, it was uh, a real motivator for me to actually start taking some action and and try to get my life back and. and my 18-year-old son drove me in the hospital that night. So you imagine that was pretty tough on him. And he was in the military. He was he was in the army for um, – after that, he joined the military. Mm. And um, he uh, – I made – I remember I was in hospital. I made a pact with him. I made a promise to him and with myself that this would never happen again. I would never let myself get to this point again and I would try and find a way to get my, get my life back. And that was – you know, I'm a bit of a bullfed. Sometimes I've got to re- – you know – Hit the, hit the lowest point before I start looking up. And, and that's what sort of what happened. And after I was released from hospital, I, pretty much every day um, for the next week, I sat at home in my lounge room in quiet reflection and, and I basically worked everything out. Like I sat there with a notepad and pen 
and I wrote down everything that I thought had led me to be in this low point. I left nothing out. And while I was doing that, I actually considered that over the 250 hours of clinical sessions I had with all these doctors over those three years, they'd tried to teach me heaps of different strategies that they said would help in my recovery. And so I went and got all the homework. The problem with it was, and this is quite common, um, these strategies being taught by different people in different places over a long three-year period, but no one ever pulled it together and, and come up with some sort of goal-focused game plan to, to, for recovery, and that's so important. And um, so, I, but I kept all this homework and I, I brought it, spread it out on the lounge room floor, and I wrote a list down of all the strategies that they they said would would help. And I, and there were a lot. It was a long list. Things like exercise, meditation, challenging negative thinking through it's called cognitive behavior therapy, and other things. Um, there, there were other things as well. And I had a look at this list and, um, and I, and I had to be honest with myself. I thought, have you given a hundred percent commitment to these things? And the honest answer was no. I mean, one of the biggest things of depression, it robs your energy and motivation. So, and then some of the other things like, um, practicing gratitude, for instance, I just saw that as warm, fuzzy, hippie shit and mm. how the fuck yeah. is it going to help me? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so at that point I thought, nah. This is D-Day. doesn't matter whether you believe in these things. You've just got to put faith in them, trust them, and, and start working on them. So what I did, I came up with my own, own game plan. And and basically what I did, I decided to come up with one small, like really small achievable action, um, that how I'd put that strategy in my life moving forward for each of them. And, uh, and I kept them small, those actions, because I wanted to set the game plan up so that it was achievable not just when I was at my best, I really wanted it to be achievable when I was at my worst. So minimise the risk of surrender basically with it. Uh, and the good thing about starting small goals is that you can build on them over time as well. So, you know, as an example for, for exercise, sat there, I had to th- think about, right, how am I going to get exercise back? And so I was just doing some casual beach walks and stuff and I needed to do a bit more. And I thought to myself, um, you barely touch your surfboard in the last three years. One of the things of depression, it robs you of the motivation and enjoyment of the things that you used to get pleasure out of. So nine times out of 10, I'd drive down to the beach from a board in my car and I'd sit there and I'd think of every reason not to go out rather than mm. the opposite. I thought to myself, right, every day, uh, your action for exercise, every day without fail, regardless of your mood or whether it's raining or whatever, you put the board in the car, drive down to the beach, and that was the hard part, getting the motivation to do that. And my action was all you got to do is get wet. You don't have to catch a wave. You don't have to paddle out. You just go get the board, get in the water, and if you don't want to stay there, you can get out, get in the car, and go home. But at least I would have committed to my action by doing that. Now, the good thing about doing it, and this is how it worked out with all the other strategies too, like meditation and, and other things, is that because it was, I kept it achievable. When, um, say, I rocked up at the beach and my mood was really low and I didn't want to get out there, I thought, all you do is get wet. So just do it. So I get out in the water. And nine times out of 10, once I was out there, I go, this feels good. And so I'd get out there and catch a few waves and get some enjoyment out of it. And then through that progress over a period of time, I started going back to the gym again. I hadn't touched weights for three years. Uh, and then I started going back to the PCYC and started doing weights and all that exercise and building myself up again. Physically as well, watching my, my, my physical appearance like return to where it was, like looking fit, healthy, lifted my self-esteem and made me feel a lot better. And none of things like meditation, um, for meditation, because I love, love to write, which is why, why there's a book now, now going out. And my meditation one was uh, to get my laptop at least once a week, particularly when I was doing it tough, and, and take it up into the rainforest near home or down to the beach 
and I sit there and write little short descriptive stories about the things I could see, hear and feel in those locations, basically like painting a picture but with words. Mm. Um, and it was really – it was creative but it was also tapping me into the world around me. It's like it was meditation of, of a kind – and uh, it was basically giving my brain time out from all the, the stuff. I've everything been doing, else, yeah. Everything else. And it was it was recovery time. Like mm. PTSD is a brain injury, really. Um, so so that worked. And, and all the other things like cognitive behaviour therapy, I didn't believe in it. But it was all involving thought-challenging worksheets and stuff. I decided, right, print up a heap of thought-challenging worksheets, put a stack in it in a folder in your car, stack next to your bed. Every time you start coming undone with one of your thoughts or beliefs, you start getting out the worksheet and start working through it. So it was commitment action for all these strategies over time. It helped me. Um, it helped me rewire. Like I, my whole fight flight system was broken. It was just so busted from all the adrenaline and all the trauma. Yeah. So you went from basically fight to completely just flight. I had no. Yeah. I had no. Yeah. So basically, the way I, way I describe the way I'd lived my life over, particularly those last mm. eight or nine years of my career, the way humans should function is you, you, there's two states, right? You've got your rest and digest, which is where most people should be most of the time, and then you've got your your fight-flight, which is basically when, when you're, you're threatened. And and I look at it as like a coloured bar graph. So you rest and digest, you're in the greens, and then when you start, you, you come under threat, you move into the yellows and oranges, and when you're in combat, that's, that's red, okay? And for me, I was always in a constant state of yellow and orange, so I can never settle into that rest digest period and it took nothing to flip me over to red, which is why, you know, there's a lot of anger issues with PTSD. Mm. It takes nothing, startle response, all those sort of things is really quite acute. So it takes nothing to get you over exactly. into the red. Um, so but what I was doing with, with particularly meditation and, and mindfulness and exercise, um, it helped me rewire that, that whole fight-flight system. And, and I guess that's um, – a lot of a lot of reasons why people don't have that motivation and commitment action is they don't believe it that it's going to work and they have that um, the, the lack of hope and belief is is a key missing ingredient and so I think for me having that game plan which is so important and I use game planning now for every adversity I ever face in my life because basically what had happened I'd, I'd had three years where I'd I'd had a real negative victim mindset that I had no control over my life. I had to prove to my doctors every month that I was unwell, insurance companies for work cover, everything. And what that did was just reinforce this negative victim mindset. Everyone else had control of my life. Um, and by having to to go and, and show doctors certificates all the time, you're basically reinforcing the message that you're unwell. Um, so for me, writing out my game plan, it gave me an opportunity to take back a bit of that control and have some sort of – because I set goals for myself, I had – once again, a bit of a sense of hope and belief that, you know, I had something to work towards and somewhere, somewhere to get there. But I, a lot of that too, especially with the cognitive behaviour therapy, got me like learning how to retrain the way I think and, and, mm. and, and in the moment. But it also got me when I, was, when I got out of hospital, I, um, while I was thinking through my action for CBT, uh, it got me thinking about the way I had been looking at my whole situation for those three years of being out of the cops. And one of the things I, I identified really quickly was that every single time someone asked me, Craig, why aren't you police anymore? I'd say I was because I suffer from PDC and suffer from depression. And I had a really good think about that word suffer. And what I realised every single time I used the word suffer, I was reinforcing a really negative message in my mind that I was a victim of these illnesses, which meant they had control over me. So I made a pact with myself that week when I got out of hospital, never to use that word suffer again. 
to say that now I live with PTSD and I live with depression. And even though it's only a subtle change, it sort of it's it implies, um, I guess, a message that well, we now coexist rather than me being their victim, which means they don't have control over me. Um, but it also implied acceptance because I, for three years I've been fighting against these illnesses, not wanting to be unwell. And that set me back. It just kept relapsing because of that. But because of this acceptance, I actually started working with them. Mm. And then from that came progress. That was a big part of the whole thing. But also with that, I thought I've, I've, I've got to try and turn what I had seen as a negative experience for those three years into something positive. And, and I really felt like I'd lost three years of my life after I left the police force. And I thought I've got to – you can't just like – you can't lose three years of your life. You've got to find a way to make them count for some reason. So um, so I came up – part of my, my game plan was to was turn negative into positive was to um, organise a fundraiser and, and support some mental health organisation. And long story short, I, I knew about some of the work that Black Dog Institute was doing with research and I came up with a plan to ride my motorbike around Australia to raise raise money and awareness. And um, I typed up a six-page proposal uh, – <laughs> Going up pretty hard, <laughs> so and um and I and I sent it off to the Black Dog Institute. My doctor had a contact there, and and the next day they called me and they said, "Mate, thank you, um, but we have got another program we think you might be interested in. You'd be really good at uh, if you're interested." They said, "We've got a program where we get people with lived experience of mental illness to go out to high schools and communities and talk sh- about it, share their stories, mm. can talk about it, reduce stigma, raise awareness." Um, and I jumped at it. There was not a second thought, yes, that's exactly what I'm after. So about a month after I'd, I got out of hospital after my suicide attempt, I found myself in a room being a facilitator's workshop um, run by the Black Dog Institute. Uh, there was 10 of us, lived experience, nine women, I was the only bloke, which is not uncommon. Um, and then they sent me away with a USB stick and and um, and off I went. Anyway, my first high school talk I had to go and deliver of all places in, in the state of New South Wales or Australia ended up being my local high school, 1K oh, no down. Way. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, of all the places. So um, it was 170 high school kids that I had to present to in what two sessions. This? this is uh, 2015, the same year. Yep, so yep. it was only a few months after yep. my uh, suicide attempt. So mm-hmm. um, I remember driving up the teacher's car park that day and um, – and I sat in my car with my hands clenched on the steering wheel. I was so fucking terrified, Matt. It was like I was like um, nothing in the police force had ever scared me as much as what I was about to do there. And I think it's just that I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to get through without embarrassing myself. And believe it or not, one of my sons was going to be in that that presentation with his mates that I'd watched grow up. And I didn't want to embarrass any of us um, by not getting through it because it's still really raw and mm. and and. Um, but, you know, at the last minute I was, just, I was so close to pulling out and I thought, nah, just get in there and have a crack. So I did. And um, in that first session and then the second one, they weren't polished. I was really nervous and to be quite honest, I can't fucking remember hardly any of it because it was, went in such a nervous blur. But what I do remember um, was packing up my stuff and it's, this happened after the first session and the second. And I looked up after the first session and I saw these – this line of kids had just magically appeared in front of me. And I don't know, it's probably eight, nine of, of, of them in that first that first group. And first of all, like being a detective, I was suspicious. Oh, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> about to mob you. Yeah, about to mob me. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, first kid comes up. He's about 16, young fella, and he shook, shook my hand and he thanked me and, and he shared with me his diagnosis of depression and what it's like for him to live 
with with that as a, as a as a young teenager and a young lady further down the line, anxiety, some sort same sort of thing. And you know, seventy five percent of all mental illness starts before the age of twenty five. So all the mm. kids out there struggling, and other kids just want to come up, have a chat, even talk about some of the war stories and the cops. Other kids want to ask about advice about parents and and friends and. And it, it sort of struck me that when I thought about it later, um, what had happened is these these kids had just seen this big, fearless bloke get up and be vulnerable in front of them. And and so I think they knew that I would get them. I, I, there was this connection. I, I, I would understand what they were going through. And 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 to be quite honest, after that first time, I walked out of that school feeling so much taller than what I was when I walked in there because I'd just taken that first step in turning – that negative into positive and, and from there one thing led to another and, and off I went. Um, you know, I had to be careful not to push too hard with it because, I, you know, if you, if, if I over-challenge myself, I'd, I'd probably end up going backwards. So I had to be really careful. But the more of these talks I did for the Black Dog Institute in combination with the other things, the exercise, meditation, et cetera, the stronger I got. It was just such a pivotal thing for me. Um and then it was – I got a phone call from Shannon from Black Dog who was my main contact there and she said, mate, we're getting some really good feedback uh, but we've got a huge amount of demand for this sort of stuff in rural areas in New South Wales. I know you worked out there a lot. You'd be a good fit. Are you prepared to travel? And I said, Shannon, I have a motorbike. Where are we going? So we started organising tours and, and first tour was Central Western New South Wales. So me and I grabbed one of my old colleagues on his motorbike as well and he came along to support me on it. And um, for five days, travelled around all these towns of central uh, New South Wales, call into a school, they get all the kids in, three or 400 kids in an assembly, have a chat, share my story, some some education with them as well. That night, be talking to parents, um, doing presentations for farmers, move on to the next town, next school, next day, uh, five days of it in a row. And it was such a success uh, getting around talking to us, probably about 1,000 kids in that first tour. So we organised another one and then we organised another one. And then somewhere in all this time, I ended up over in WA talking to kids over in, in the um, in the Western Australian Wheat Belt. And, mate, I, I can only – I can only like – it's hard to describe how profound those interactions with those kids mm. that I had were on me, not only just for them but for me and my mental health and well-being. It was like filling the bucket up again. Kids are just unbelievable. Like yeah. I, I had a real negative attitude towards teenagers from my years in the cops, but like t- these these experiences totally changed me. And I had so many. I've talked about some of them before. But I had so many experiences and interactions with some of those kids who, who that afterwards, and not because I was sad, because I was so beautiful. I'd cry afterwards because it was just so in, um, profound and poignant. There's one one that I've talked about where I went to one high school and and um, and this happened a few times. But there was this one kid at this rural high school and he's waiting for all his, his mates to finish talking to me after a chat and 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 he came up to me afterwards and um, when he got his chance and he looked me dead in the eye and he shook my hand, he said, Craig, I really want to thank you. And I could see there was something special about this one kid and and, um, and I said, mate, you're welcome. Why is that? And he, uh, he said, well, when I was only two, my mum killed herself. And he said, I've gone through my whole life being angry and resenting her for leaving me my, on my own. And I said, mate, I can't believe you sat through this talk. Like you did so well to get through it. Are you feeling okay now? And he said, mate, after listening to you for the first time, I think I'm starting to understand what she must have been going through and I now feel at peace. And he looked me in the eyes and shook my hand again and off he walked. And uh, I, 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 hand on heart, 
if that kid was the only interaction I'd had with all these thousands of kids I come into contact with, then he has made on his own what I went through for those years totally worth it. Because who knows what different direction that kid's life has now taken as a result of the fact that he let go of that anger and resentment towards his lost mum. And that's what that's where I think for me, doing all this stuff with Black Dog, it was um when I got out of the cops, we've already talked about this, I had no sense of purpose. I lost it. Now you found it again. Got, In a new, different fucking aspect. Absolutely. It's yeah. so much more positive. Mm. Um, you know, it's influencing, you know, obviously the younger generations as well. That's where we want to get them. Exactly it's, right. It, you know, exactly right. At that age. Yeah. We're boys at that age. And, you know, I guess, again, going back to our time, a little bit free range and yep. no technology, but now with the technology, you're seeing all this trauma. Yeah. You know, you type in news.com.au and the first thing is some – Someone in Ukraine getting their head blown off type yeah. thing, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's unfiltered It's just, now. it's nonstop, whereas we didn't have that freedom of no. information back, you know, we had Dad's bloody stick magazine and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> you found yours, you <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> it's, um, look, at, well, I think one of the things with, with the kids' side of it is that, like, we had drilled into us as kids, don't cry. Mm. Boys yeah, exactly, cry, right? Right. And, exactly and so right. now getting hold of these guys, well, the, what, one of the things I say to boys and men at, at different jobs I go to from different times is that um, I get really pissed off with, with men being bagged out um, by various ideological groups out there who want to run us down about toxic ma- masculinity mm. and all that sort of stuff. And I don't buy into a lot of that, that stuff. Nah, there's there's nah. bad men, there's bad women. Exactly. Okay? And um, But but what I, what I hate out of the whole thing, right, is that um, – I, I, what I want is for, for young men to grow up and be proud of their masculinity. Exactly right. That's what, what you That's, are as a man is, and being masculine is part of that. Mm. But, but also being masculine and being a, being a man, like in its, in its true meaning, is also accepting that you're vulnerable and, and, and accepting that vulnerability when it happens and reaching out to your mates and asking for help when you need it. So that for me is a big part of masculinity as well. Mm. And and so I, I guess with the stuff I'm doing and, and I'm not the only one, there's lots of people out there that go and do this sort of stuff with kids in high schools that I just want to get that next generation of men to accept that and, and to know that it's it's okay not to be okay. Mm. And and it's definitely okay to ask for help and, and not just from clinicians, but also from your mates and people around you, your friends and family and I think that's the message I, I think I was getting through with that. Yeah. And that was a big part. So so basically after doing that for a couple of years, I, I, I had reached, like I'd beaten depression. I got on, well and truly on top of that. And um, But I, I'm very mindful not to get carried away with myself about the way I describe my recovery from PTSD because it's not something you can just – I find it hard to believe some people will get up and say, oh, I'm, I'm cured of PTSD. I, I find that – Everyone's circumstances are different, but I think particularly with military and, and, and cops, they're going through a long period of trauma and, and adrenaline and, and life-threatening situations over a long period of time. It's very, very hard to completely unwire and unwrap that whole setup, right? So I, I, I describe my recovery as being not cured. It's just I've, I've learned to, number one, I've rewired myself to a large extent to the point where I can get to that green of rest and digest and and, and tap into that those those periods when I need to, and but I, I sort of look at recovery as for me is about I've ju- I've always experienced some aspects of PTSD. I probably wouldn't even reach a diagnosis of it now. There'll be some parts of it that will intrude into my life from time to time, of course. But I've sort of reduced the impact, the negative impact mm-hmm. that those things have, have had on my life over that period of time. Where where now I just say I'm recovered or I'm on a recovery journey. So um, and I'm always looking to. It's, I, I never take my foot off the off the pedal as far as recovery goes, 
that that recovery game plan that I came up with is now my well-being game plan. So I, I, all the things I use to get well, I, I maintain now. And that's a big thing for me moving forward is um, is making sure that I don't get too carried away with myself. Um, take the time, know when the warning signs that I'm sort of overcommitting, maybe a bit stressed, and then I'll fall back on that well-being Back to those plan. basic things that you were doing 100%. to uh, defocus your mind on that mental yep. health. You move on to, you know, doing your go out on a bush ride or a, and you go back to your basics where you're writing down, you know, the surrounding environments and yep. taking your mind off it. Yeah, get back back yeah. to the foundations. Mm. It's, and it's uh, – so, look, I got hit over the head with a baseball bat with it, um, but at least I've learnt. And, and now um, – now I practice those things on a regular basis and, and other things like practicing gratitude and a whole range of other um, well-being strategies too. But as I guess, um, you know, I, I started t- – I took on a role, another volunteer role. Once I reached that um, turning point in my recovery, I, I went out and um, and there was a, a police legacy initiative. It was funded by the police force, but as usual, when once a few years down the track, they pull the funding on these things and move on to something else. But for five years, we had this really good program called Backup for Life. And it was basically, and I was one of the inaugural members on it. And we were doing as volunteers mentoring uh, other cops who were leaving the police force or had left, and giving them some support uh, and, and bringing them back into the family, uh, and we're also doing support for their family members as well. And and um, and while I was doing that, I uh, I did a mental health first aid course, and and uh, and then I learned that you could become an instructor and and set up your own business. So I did all that. And um, and then for the first time in many years, I was, for the, I was starting to earn an income uh, and being self-sufficient. So no more workers' comp or anything like that. It was back on my own steam um, and looking after myself uh, moving forward. And, and um, I ended up putting together transition programs, which are now being run for cops that are leaving the police force, which are under work cover, which is basically helping other cops set up their game plans for when they leave police force, not only just the well-being, but all practical game plans for give themselves a bit of a sense of hope and, and belief that there's life outside the cops as well, um, going back and sharing all those. So done that, did the mental health first aid. I've now got around and spoken to about 30,000 people around the country in, in over that short period of time. Um, and I, I guess the biggest thing I hope that by sharing my story is, is that I actually give that hope and belief to others who might be struggling with that like I was because, that's, as I said, it's a key ingredient for getting yourself back on your feet is, is actually belief. So, um, so yeah, look, I would say now um, where I am, I've reached that point of recovery, but part of that is I'm, I'm achieving things again, like you said, in a different, a t- totally different role. Um, but I've got a good quality of life again. Um but one of the biggest things I think for me overcoming that grief of that lost identity was building a new one. Mm. And, and now I might not be Detective Craig Semple anymore, but I'm sort of, I guess I look at myself as Craig Semple, mental health advocate and educator. So I'll build a new identity, which has replaced the one I've lost. And that's good. And I think um, for, for veterans and, and, and former emergency services, you know, um, getting back to work, in some capacity. For me, originally, it was just as a volunteer, not paid work, just as a volunteer, just getting back and having some purpose in life is the key ingredient to, to actually getting yourself back and, and, and getting your life back. Exactly. Um, it's such a huge thing. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely massive, mate. Now, moving on to your book. Now, this is obviously what led to you writing the book. 
the first sample to write a book. I don't know if the other sample can write books. <laughs> He's actually a good writer. Is he? What he doesn't have is the patience to sit is down. Pat- and- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, I know he's got patience to eat a, eat a bloody burger. Far out. <laughs> Mate, we went to KFC, I reckon, three or four times in about two days once. Dirty bird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be listening. He'll be listening. Yeah. So, mate, so you've written a book, The Cop Who Fell to Earth. So, basically, mate, I only just got it two days ago and I haven't had mm. the chance to get through mm. it yet, but definitely a read. And uh, on the front here, Nick Cowdis. Mm. He's uh, put a couple of words on. The man himself, Nick Cowdis. Hopefully, he's out there listening. Oh, so, I'm sure uh, he's busy. Mate, when I reached out to him, I was so blown away when he accepted to do a dedication to it and, and well, read it, number one, with, with the amount of work. And, you know, you've had, had him on here and he's uh, the amount of work he's got on at the moment with the Veteran Suicide Royal Commission and, and other things for him to take the time to read it and then write some beautiful things about it. I was, I, he was probably the most respected New South Wales cop in the entire police force when, when I was still in there. So that's a, that's a it's, I'm really proud yeah. of Cowardice for PM. Oh, oh, I've asked him. Do I it. said, mate, do it. you got to do it. You know, Cowardice for PM. You're better than that clown we got now. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> the weasel. <laughs> You're as bad as my brother. <laughs> mate, uh, tell us about this book. Look, it's a 10-year project. When I first started writing it, it was um, – I'd had to write a chronology of all the things I'd attended, mainly the horrific stuff for my doctors with the, all the diagnosis and assessment. Anyway uh, – I, I I wrote out sixty pages of all the horrors that I've been to, right, and um and I found myself getting involved in writing them in detail and in a creative sort of way, and, and I found it quite cathartic to actually write. And when I when I gave it to him, I said, "Mate, I'm going to go back and start this all over again," because and he looked shocked when I said, "I said, mate, um, my career in the cops is way more than that sixty pages. There's so many good things, exciting things, and other stuff I'd really want to." So I'm going to start it all over again. And what I found, it was not even any intention at that time of writing a published book. I just wanted to write something where I could process all my life experiences, put them all down, package them up and put it behind me and, and sort of process in the in the whole um, writing of those stories. But I also wanted something I could give my three sons and say, mate, guys, this is what this is what I did and I hope you're proud of me. And and maybe it might explain some of the sacrifices and hard hardships we had over the years as well. Um, but then when I finished it, and this is like five six years down the track, um, I thought, you know, my doctor thought, you know, you write really well, you should send this off. So I sent it off to some editors, and they had a, did a professional review on it, gave me some tips about rewriting it because it was just too big. There was too many stories in it, and um, I never had a cracked a chance to go back and have another crack at it. I probably never would have. Then COVID came along and mm. shut me down business-wise. And so I had an opportunity to go back and rewrite it. And, mate, I've really enjoyed the creativity of um, of putting a story together. And and, and and with that book, it's like 70% of like the police stuff, um, doing all these murders and, and bikey jobs and whatever. And in that, I've really written it in a way that I want people to feel like they're sitting in the driver's seat so they get it. Right next to you. Right next thing. to it, yeah. right in the thick of it and, and get a sense of the – the thrill and also the horror and the grief and all those sorts of things. But, and then there's 30% the last end about all the things that I did to, you know, all my mental health battles and how I recovered as well. So look, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And, um, and I've, you know, I've, look, I, I never expected this to happen. And I'm so grateful that there's a publisher out there that think I've got a story to tell and I can, that I can tell it. But the main thing for me is that it's not, not just my story. 
like there's so many cops out there and other people in life, military, but it lives just exciting and, and fulfilling lives. But I guess I've just had the opportunity and the ability to put it into words. So I feel like I'm sort of not only telling my story for me, I'm sort of telling a story for a lot of others too. And and hope that hopefully, because there's a lot of disrespect out there for law enforcement these days. Yeah, exactly. Towards cops. Mm. And I, I really hope that people can start understanding what they actually do. Um, the basic last line of defence. Exactly right, mate. Without the police, there is anarchy. Anarchy. Fuck, it is lawless. <laughs> Chaos. Bring it, bring it on, see mate. I'd enjoy it. <laughs> I got my axe here. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. It's making me a little nervous while I'm sitting here. <laughs> um, yeah, mate. I'm definitely keen to have a read, and uh, definitely it'll be out. This book will be out by the time this podcast drops. Yeah. So definitely get out there. Where can they find the book? Look, there's uh, a few online platforms, Booktopia, Amazon, got it on already, a few other uh, platforms. It's all the major bookshops will have it. Um, probably see it in some airports as well. And um, Yeah, but I, I guess, you know, if you can't get to a bookshop or you just like ordering your books online, there's plenty of options there. Uh, you can pre-order now, but it's uh, by the time this goes to air, it'll already mm. be on the shelves and yeah, you can just go in and get it. I think um, – I don't know. I hope it goes all right, but it's sort of one of those things where I'm just sort of I'm one of those blokes who I don't get too far ahead of myself. I'll just see where it, where it goes and and just enjoy the ride. Hopefully along the way, mate. I think uh, majority of the listeners will be out there getting this book, mate. It definitely uh, after hearing your story, mate. It's um, just proves that anyone can be affected. It doesn't matter how strong, how you know whatever you are, how masculine. Tip for young players. It, actually, it's a, it's a good tip for the younger generation out there. Be be proud of being a you know, especially for males. Be proud of being a male. Mm. Understanding we're in twenty twenty three where there's four hundred genders and it's you know toxic masculinity yeah. is what they call it now. Just be proud, you know. Absolutely. But if you want to be a a geek or a you know <laughs> a girly man, be one. Like there's there's just yeah. If you want to join the air force and. <laughs> All the Navy and be a pussy, then oh, cool, you yeah, know, like, service rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, like people just need to be people. Yeah, be, exactly. be yourself, and yep. uh, mate, absolutely incredible. Obviously, you come from a thoroughbred uh, bloodline with uh, Jason. You know, you blokes have done your country proud, and you know the, the community proud. You know, as you said before, and as we said before, if there wasn't was no police, it'd be an absolute fucking yeah anarchy. Yeah, yeah. So we need police, but. Saying that the police aren't helping themselves these days, you know, as in the the command structure, they yeah. you know they they need some bloody work. That's Do for we sure. need to go to the smash glass and emergency. Oh, I think we're at that stage now. <laughs> Far out. I think some of those coppers couldn't even be able to smash that glass. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're still out there and they're putting themselves in the in the front. Exactly, line mate. There's there's plenty, of, and yeah. I've got plenty plenty of uh, young cop listeners, and you know I value them listening, and I'm sure this this story will help. You know. There might be that one young cop out there. And I yeah. think there was only a suicide two or three months ago, I think, down in Sydney. A young police officer, you know, just took his own life. And Far too many. It's, uh, it is it is a tough job. As he spoke about earlier, you can be going from one job to to something completely different. You know, look, uh, for example, look at that Ambo that was stabbed in, in Sydney not long ago, you know. Yep. Fuck. Out of the blue. Out of the blue. Yep. So. That was so tragic. Um, but there's so, well, so many things happening now. I mean, over in Auckland this morning is I just, I just saw yeah, that. Yeah. So, so it's um, I mean, you just uh, what I've learned 
is I don't take anything in life for granted, mm. especially every moment. Like I cherish it so much more than what I ever have before. Exactly. Um, and uh, life's so short. It is. It's definitely want to live it to the best quality you can. And, and strive to be better. Yep, strive absolutely. Strive to be a better person. Yep. Uh, mate, now, just to tie it off, got a couple of final questions. Oh, no. Right, I didn't prep for this. <laughs> Mate, uh, first question, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on, you know, just complete any goal they set their mind to and just abs- just crush it in life? You know, you've you've had that absolute fucking stellar police career, hit fucking rock bottom, pretty much try to kill yourself. Now you've folded the 180 – sharing your story to make people better. So what advice can you give to people just to fucking kill it? Look, number one is if you're struggling, don't ignore it. Talk up. Yeah, talk up. And and even if it's not with a doctor, definitely share with your mates and, and everyone else. Um, it's so important. Like the way I describe it, you can run as hard and fast for mental health problems as you like. But the way, the way I look at it, the further you run, the harder you run, the harder you get pulled down in the end. Any way to deal with it, turn around, confront it get on top of it and get on with your life again, which is probably really important. One other thing I would say on that is, um, like, like I've done, um, is you're going through a tough time in your life. Don't don't um, fall into that negative victim mindset. Like, t- feel like get, get your game plan together, work out what your challenges are, and then work out what actions you need to put into place to overcome them. That's such an important thing. Not enough do we do it um, when we're facing it with relationship problems, finance dramas, whatever it is. It's really important to write it all down and come up with a game plan uh, so you could, you've got something to work towards. So that would probably be the two biggest points of advice for me. Yeah. And again, uh, talking about younger cops, I know it's a lot different these days if you do have mental health issues and you do, you're not going to get booted from the police. No. You can get fixed yep. and they'll put you back out in the street, back to your job. So for the listeners out there, just speak up. It's just- um, I take it from my experience. You know what my consequence like. I, you know, for me, I had that fear that I'd lose my career, and that was because generationally, I'd seen so many cops other that had mm. shown the door. Um, but but nowadays, the the, the main focus is on um, fixing you, making you better while you're at work, Office- in, in some sort of adjusted capacity. Exactly. It's like, and it's cost effective for the government. So, so that's, much. That's why they're going towards that way. It's huge. Getting people back onto the job and. Be better for the person as well. Obviously, you'd be back in the job, otherwise separating. Yeah, and and look for for military and and for mm. uh, emergency services. I always I, I always recommend too. Don't wait for your commanders or or your boss to sort of tap you on the shoulder or to bring in some education about mental health into your workplace. You go out and be proactive, and you find out everything you possibly can about the things that you're at risk of in in your relevant role. So you're educated, you know what to look for, and you know what, how to how to get on top of it. Uh, before it gets too too far, so don't wait for others to to share all that sort of information with you. You go out and be proactive and find out as much as you can as well. Exactly, prevention is better than cure. Yeah, exactly, mate. And there's plenty of organisations out there, uh, Aussie Frontlines. Uh, there's plenty, plenty yeah. out there you can reach out to and get your opinions from. And just just again for the listeners, it if you go see your doctor and they just put you straight on the drugs, question it. it drugs not only can destroy you. It might not work for you, but it might work for you. So just make sure that there is multiple different avenues you can take other than doing drugs, you know, taking, uh, I wouldn't say doing drugs, but uh, medication. Yeah. And, you know, there's, like you did, mate, you went out, got on your bike out in the bush, but, you know, but, did a bit of a diary type thing. As much as I was on medication for a long period of time, what really got me well 
um, was actually doing all these exactly. strategies that these, I, was, I was putting into play. Exactly. So, um, look, the medications, you always take advice from your doctors when it comes to all that sort of stuff. Um, all, all I say is that just don't assume that taking antidepressants is going to make you antidepressed. Exactly, it's, it's, exactly. It's, it's that's a tool and that's all it is. It might um, work for you, it might not. Yeah, it'll take the edge off and it'll help with you with, with managing symptoms, mm. but what really gets you well is is hard work. Yeah. Uh, you've got to, got to put your head down and do all the good stuff that the doctors tell you to do, and that's the behavioural change stuff and, and the way you change it, the way you think and doing the exercise. They're the things that really make a difference. Yeah, exactly, mate. Find what's right for you. Mm. Simple. Yeah. Now, mate, second question, what is the plans for the future? Obviously, we've got the book out now. Hopefully, it becomes a bestseller. I don't know, mate. It's sort of one of those things, like I said, I fly in the seat of my pants. Mm. I, what, what's really hilarious is like I've, I've met the most beautiful woman. Uh, over, you know, we've been together for a few years now, and she's and she brought a couple of other young kids into my life too. My, my kids are all grown up, and my youngest one's in 6RAR up there in Inaugura, so yeah, good really proud good of his him. military career. Yeah. Yeah, so I yeah. thought you'd like that. So he's uh, he's up there doing all the, all the fun stuff. and So my kids are growing up, and, and – um, you know, with Kyla's kids, they're they're um, they're younger, so I've got a different role with them as well than what I have with my own boys. It's a different setup, but so we're just sort of I'm just enjoying that ride with them at the moment. And um, uh, professionally, I'm just going to keep on doing what I do and just mm. see where it goes. On as much as so, the funny thing is, like Kyla's a real fly by the seat of your pants type of person. And I'm a really structured, I need that planning and organising after, you know, it's basically hardwired into me. I, I need that, which is causes some um, causes some fun and games from time to time. But so she would be laughing, listening to me saying, I'm, I'm flying by the seat of my pants where my life is going to go now as far as everything goes because I can't really um, – I just like, like just going with the flow to, with that because I had no idea – when I started doing that volunteer work with Black Dog, talking to those kids that would then move into a career and then I'd start a business and then that's just, that business would be successful and now be a company and, and now doing all the stuff I'm doing. So it's all just been a, a natural process of letting things happen um, rather than having too much structure around it. Yeah, right. And obviously you got your own business uh, basically travelling around and uh, talking about mental health. Yeah, so Mentality Plus. Um, so I kicked that off in 2017 and um, – and look, it's just one thing's led to another. I, I collaborate with a lot of other providers too. It's one of the things I like to do rather than make my business some sort of big thing where I've work got heaps of employees. Else. Work with it. I collaborate with others. And, and so I've got my lane and, and I've got my specialty and I've got my strengths in, in that, that lane. I tend not to stray out of them. With the networks I've got, say the leadership training, I've got some mates here, ex-cops, uh, who, who do all that sort of stuff. And another lady who does um, – it was actually Shannon who used to work for the Black Dog who got me into all that talk. She, she's got her company and she does a lot of consultancy work and that's her specialty and I, and I spear people. So we work together but not in an mm. informal partnership. It's just a collaboration and that that's a good fit for me. That's what I love doing and, and it's one of the good things for my clients is um, when I recommend they go to somebody to get that, they they trust me and, that, and they'll know they get a good service from that. So. I don't know. It's an enjoyable thing. I've learned a lot because I had no idea how to run a business before I just jumped in and had a crack at it. I learned, learned once again, thrown in the deep end of the pool and learned to swim. Um, but it's it's a learning experience and I'm in, I'm really enjoying it. I enjoy the fact that I've, I work for myself too and I've got that sort of element of self-control over my life and, and how fast I want to roll with it or when I want to back it off. That's that's an important thing too. Uh, website? Um, yeah, WW. Well, I've got no idea actually. It's just meant, if you look up Mentality Plus, there's only one of them. Yeah. Um, what is it? WW. 
dot dot mentalityplus.com.au yeah, I'd say it I'm there probably it. is yeah <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up anyway I'll have to have, to have a look at it um anyway so you find find me through yeah there. you can send me an email or something through the website oh, are it's you got on social, an form. social media yeah I don't do a lot of it um but I am um, I mean the publishers uh for the book have um, yep. got me activating stuff again so oh, yeah. I'm sort of I'm looking at shaking my head. You're doing dances I'm, on TikTok? I'm, <laughs> I'm just not a social media person, but I've, 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 I've had to sort of kick a few things off, promote the book and whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm on social, on Facebook Messenger and stuff like that, uh, Insta, um, all there, LinkedIn. Um, so, yeah, reach out to me, keep, keep an eye on things through that. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Now, mate, uh, third question, uh, just to bring you back down. So just being a, a normal dude, mate. Tell us something that people don't know about you. Maybe like a guilty, guilty obsession, guilty pleasure. Fuck. I know Sam's like Jason loves a burger. He loves burgers. Does he? Yeah. Oh yeah. He, well, he, he doesn't. How look, does he, he manage to keep? Mate, make oh, up. far out. When we worked together a few few months ago, all He's he wanted chiseled. to do was just eat. He, he just wanted to eat. He just wanted to eat That's burgers. Good to know. Dirty bird. That is very interesting. Yeah. Mate, you know what? Probably most people wouldn't guess, but as a as a former detective, I actually, when I go for a beer, uh, I like to drink at pubs that you would not expect me to be drinking at, like yeah, pubs right. where gentlemen yeah. clubs. Or <laughs> <No>. <laughs> actually, the the rougher side of the town, as far as yeah, I right. go, I, I actually like um, I like going to pubs where it's just full of like knockabouts who may be doing it tough in yeah. life, you know, yeah. um, low socioeconomic areas and stuff like that. Um, there's one, I won't say where it is, yeah. but it's, it's, it's my, it's my local. And I just love going in there because even, even though these guys have, have lived on the opposite side of the world than me, but like literally, yeah. they, they, um, they know what I did yeah. for a living, but so they're so accepting. Yeah. And, um, and I walk in there and, and, and the, like, you know, from time to time there'll be a bit of a laugh about my previous occupation and what some of them are up to, but it's um, it's also uh, they, I walk in there and, and I'm welcome as soon as I walk in yeah. and I sit down at the table and I say, Craig, so good to see you, mate. What are you betting on? Do you have a, have a punt or whatever it's, it is? And I still love that sort of stuff, you know. As much as my drinking compared to what it was in, in the old days is nothing compared mm. to what it used to be, I still love that social aspect of getting into – Getting into my local rough dive and and um and having a couple of schooners with with all those boys and having a bit of a bit of a pun on the horses. Yeah, yeah. You'll be one of those old blokes just in the pub. And when you're 80 years old, just having a punt, and having with a, a chat, with a newspaper yeah, rolled with up under my arm. No TAB tickets in the <laughs> nah, pocket anymore. It. But that's <laughs> <laughs> probably I don't know much else that I that I really want to disclose about myself that, that I feel guilty about. But um, look, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd probably leave it at that. It's, it's probably one of my yeah. main things. Yeah, I like that, mate. I love a pub. Yeah, if you don't like a pub, you're a weirdo. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm, I just. I just don't do the yuppie pubs. You know, I'm just not nah, anywhere mate, if, with lawyers and real estate agents and all oh, that hanging out. Mate, no, if, it, if it's got craft beer, I'm out. hundred oh, percent. What does it go with that? Fuck out of here. Like you that's, might as well. It's, you're yeah. drinking fruit. What does it go oh, with that? I don't know. <laughs> These oh, these kids these days. <laughs> That's horrible stuff. Needs to be bloody just full strength, bloody Carlton. Yeah. Well, I grew up on Fosters. Fosters, yeah. Fosters, Fosters and MBB, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, Jeez, I'm a Queenslander, so 4X. Oh, yeah. Well, 4X yeah. was a big beer yeah. for a while too. Yeah. Bloody Get hell. into it. Mate, uh, throw in one more question. Favourite cop movie? 
Or TV show. Or, uh, my favourite cop movie of all time would be Heat. Ooh. Yeah. That's classic. With Al Pacino yeah. and Robert De Niro. Um, it's that first part when they, they uh, robbed that. It, uh, it's just that um, robbery stuff. Robbery, I, because yeah. it takes me back, like mm. back in the old days. Not that the um, robberies are that violent. Um, yeah. But, geez, uh, um, it, it just felt so real. And, and also with uh, Al Pacino with his domestic yeah. situation too, with the difficulties he was having with relationships, I think that really cut through for me. Um, but the, the realism in, in some of the action for, for, the, for its day, that was definitely one of my favourites. It was, yeah, super. Yeah, right. Any TV shows? Um, I love Witcher. All the streaming shows that are on at the moment, I love mm. Witcher. Uh, I loved all the Viking-type uh, movies. I love reading books that are from a different yeah era. Yeah, take me out of this world and yeah. And well, Jason else. looks like a bloody Viking. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean he he would he does look medieval, he does. doesn't he? He, he, is, <laughs> well, he is. He's from that era. <laughs> well, he's got he's got the looks and he's got the scars, he? yeah. and he's got the tattoos. So yeah. he could easily walk in there now and uh, and get a part on Vikings. It uh, the Northman series, all those sort of things. I, I love watching as well. So things that'll take me out of. I love to get taken to another world and just have yeah. a little bit of time out of this one. Yeah. Um, so, and that's including the books I read as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Have you ever watched uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine? Yeah. How, How funny is that? that? How good is that? So I, that's I, my. If I was like, that is the reason why I want to be a police officer <laughs> because of that TV show. Who do you want to be? <laughs> Jake Peralta. Oh, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> and then you be a cake eater. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so uh, look, I, I do love that show. That the the. Um, the satire and the sarcasm in it is just it's second awesome. to none, and yeah. I do love sarcasm. It is, uh, I think, it's underdone these days. Yeah, it's just so good. No, awesome, mate, and uh, yeah, mate. No, really appreciate you coming on, uh, coming here, and giving me your time in the studio, mate. If people want to reach out to you again, they can head to your website. Yeah www.mentalityplus.com.au. <laughs> 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 uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, Insta, Facebook, yeah, uh, TikTok, maybe one day. You're I don't mate, New South Wales police never, is out there doing TikToks. You're never gonna. One thing I, I've drew the line at with my sons as far as keeping in contact with them: TikToks, Snapchat, Snapchat, yeah. and TikTok and stuff yeah. like that. No way. Is, is your son uh, up in Cicero? Is he is he married or anything? No, Apple hasn't fallen yeah, too so far from the tree with that boy. Yeah, he's he's loving life. He's, oh, mate, I can only imagine the dirtbag he is in six area. I was, I was one of those diggers once. I, I can't. I, I like it frightens me sometimes because I see so much of me in him, and I, and I think how lucky I was to survive everything that I went through as a in my, in my early twenties in particular. But um, you know, my only advice to him, and the same to young, other young blokes, is just be careful. Just yeah. like have a good time and everything. Just remember the consequences and all those sort of things. But he is such. I'm so proud of him. Yeah, I'm proud of all my sons. You know, but. Um, I'm just so proud of the way he's he's attacking his career at, in, at this point in time. And, but good, how much yeah. he's just loving life. Oh, mate. That's, he just loves that's, his mates. He loves his nightlife, his yeah. social life. Oh, he's just everything I was doing army. at his age. And there I is just no responsibility in the army. <laughs> you can honestly spend every cent on payday and still have somewhere to sleep, still have somewhere to <laughs> that's eat. That's a good point. Yep. 100%. Every week we'd just blow it every every single fortnight. Yeah. Blow it and I've still got somewhere to live and eat. Yeah, but all the memories you got. Oh, fuck. You know, you could, have, you, could, you, could have, you could have saved every one of those cents. Yeah. And you'd have no stories to tell. Oh, yeah, there's definitely there's plenty of fucking stories. Yeah, but most of them are in the vault. <laughs> They're staying in the vault. <laughs> uh, mate, again, really appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing story. And, mate, I'm going to crack through that book. And, again, that book's going to be out by the time this podcast is out as well. So. Cool. Mate. Oh, thanks for giving it support, mate. And thanks I'll come for to that to local. Uh, I'll come to that local pub and have have a brew. Yeah, 
you'll, you'll be definitely yeah. welcome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'll, I think you'll fit in really well there, actually, Matt. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a compliment. Actually, uh, hold on one second. Jason. Oh, stop. What a G up. Hang on. He's uh... oh, perfect timing. Absolute perfect timing. Let's see if we can get him back. Hey, buddy. How you going? Jason, how are you? <laughs> yeah, good. You what a are, stitch up. You are live on the air with the Smarter Simple. That's, oh, that, no. that was from his mouth. That was from his mouth. I should have expected something between yeah. you two. I thought I because he's already done his podcast, I could cut loose on him, and he's got no right to pull up. <laughs> and now you've sort you've, you've done this, mate. I forgot to reach out to him actually, and I was just texting. <laughs> That's why if you see me with my phone earlier, yeah. I was texting going, "Fuck, I need you, I need you, I need you." Here he is, Jason. I was actually on a live fire range. Oh know, yeah, weapons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, mate. Uh, yeah, mm. so um, you joined here with your brother, Craig, and he says he's the smartest sample. Um, that's why he became a detective and you just become a, a trunk monkey, T-A-U. <laughs> Tactical <laughs> toss bag, yeah. I've called him all the time. <laughs> yeah. Mate, uh, give, yeah, us, give us a couple. The detectives always want. <laughs> they love that one. Can I just say, Matty, that the, um, the specialist units get psychometrically tested all the time. And when we were part of that process was also the um, – you know, the, I suppose, testing of IQs. And I think the only, the only part of specialist policing that um, was in front of the tactical guys was actually forensics unit, and um, the defectives were the next layer down. So um, <laughs> yeah, we always, always loved that one because science approved the point. So anyway, well, um, that was continue on. Mainly because when they got to testing, they, they did all the testing, they were all hung over. I would say that would be the <laughs> yeah. primary reason. Yeah. Mate, uh, two two things. Now, I just want to quickly touch on, uh, you know, the mental health episodes uh, that uh, Craig had, you know, in 2015. How did how did that affect you? Or was that one directed at me? Yeah, that was you, mate. Yep, that was for you. Yeah. See, there, there you go. Uh, I've just derailed my intelligence. So, um, <laughs> I know. Good start. <laughs> it's because I was distracted by where I am now. I'm actually in a vehicle with four heavily armed dudes. So, um, yeah, um, oh, you know, are you, are you sort of, from a mental health perspective, you're talking about what happened to me or, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, yeah, mate. Like, how, you know, how did it affect you mentally and, you know, knowing that your brother was, you know, basically about to pull a pin on life? You know? Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's there's large chunks of it where you just think, oh no, it's my big brother, you know, and you know, always looked up to him. He's always hard as nails. Um, he really did have that sort of persona around, you know, like not a. We always joke about the detectives, but you know, they do a fantastic job. And um, at the at the sharp end of policing, and um, you know, especially some of the um, organised activities he was doing, he really was at the sharp end. Um, you know, so oh, I just, I just, in my, it takes a while to cycle around and he really, shit, he really is in the hurt locker. Like, um, you know, I think it's a lot of that disbelief around, you know, when someone's, um, wheels fall off, um, you sort of, it's a bit of a shock and then it's like, well, how do I, how do I approach this? It's like, I've always looked up to him as someone of strength, you know, for myself and, um, you know, it's a bit scary when, when you see their wheels fall off because then you start second-guessing how you should be, um, you know, uh, functioning in life as well. So, um, yeah, it was, um, 
it was it was it was scary for him, and then also you know um, you know not being uh, selfish, but I, was, I sort of transferred back onto myself, going, oh, if his wheels have fallen off, <laughs> you know where should I be? You know in the space of things. So long long um, long answer there, but you know at the end of the day, once I realised that um, you know it really truly was in that hurt locker, um, it was just. You know, I spent as much time as I could trying to communicate with him and see what he needed from me. And you know, um, you know, he he was um, strong enough to um, recognise where he was at as well and go and get help. You know, so um, you know, even even when he was probably at his worst, he was almost at his best as well in terms of you know having that capacity to do that. Yeah, right, mate. And just uh, I'm. What I'm just trying to break it down a little bit, in regards to you know what you've what you've could could have done better. Is there anything you regret regret not helping him with? Yeah, probably um, realizing the severity. Um, you know, selfishly, you know, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would sort of um, understand this. Too. Selfishly, you sort of you want them to be back to where they were and you know I mean it's like you, you can't just expect that so it really does take effort on your part to sort of um, you know support them and um, understand where they're at because the understanding that's probably the key to them being able to okay he understands that and he acknowledges it and um, there's no judgement it's like um, you know it's real um, so I think the speed of which I um, you know responded and it, though I have to caveat I was overseas for a you know, working in um, you know in the military over in the UAE at the time, so the tyranny of distance sort of um, isolated me a fair bit from him. Um, so I think if I had my time again, I probably would have flown straight home and you know spent some time with him and um, just been in his corner. Yeah, Quick right. Now, awesome, mate. No, I appreciate it. Now, mate, uh, second question, mate. Give mm. us an embarrassing story. Oh, of himself or me? Of uh, Craig, there's got to be something out there, mate. Even oh, when you there's, there's heaps of them. Um, <laughs> the problem is, like, um, uh, so you, you know this one all too well, Matty. It's <laughs> what I can actually um, drop on air. <laughs> so um, I'm going to revert back to before he was in the cops, actually, because <laughs> when we were growing up, he, he literally was YouTube when it came to. Um, he was just lovey dovey. Um, you know, had, he was he was always always had a girlfriend. Whereas I always was, um, you know, Mister ADHD onto twenty different sports and just being a lunatic and getting in fights. But um, yeah, I remember getting in a fight on the school bus with someone a couple of years older than me, and you know, he was just about to. He was only probably um, twelve months away from being in the cops, you know, because he was in, in his last year or two of school. And I got in a fight and, um, you know, some older dude, like, literally um, gave me a massive hit. My head hit the window of the bus. And, uh, you know, so it was like almost um, bringing on the tears back in those days. And I looked around at my brother. He was sitting at the, on the back seat of the bus canoodling. And he sort of looked over and he was like, um, you know, it was almost like sucked in. That's what you get for being such an asshole for uh, as a brother for so long. Um, yeah, so it was like I looked at him for some support and he sort of smirked and, Oh well, you sort of brought that on yourself. So, um, <laughs> I have yeah, no recollection just, of that. Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't and mean then, it didn't then happen. Then he, when he got into the cops, I just saw this transition. It was like, oh man, what has happened to him? He's just turned into this super aggressive, um, you know, um, 
brother that I, you know, obviously looked up to in, in a massive way. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, not, not the most embarrassing story, um, but, um, yeah, I think, I think it's very important to acknowledge how future he was, um, in his, um, you know, late teens <laughs> while his brother was out there, um, being the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute classic, mate. Mate, uh, appreciate you taking the call, mate, and, uh, we'll, we'll chat soon. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll see you later, boys. Take care, mate. Thanks, mate. How about that, mate? That was perfect timing. What Absolutely. a stitch up. Perfect. What a stitch perfect. up, you boys. <laughs> Absolute perfect timing. I was texting him earlier going, fuck no, where are you? Because he's hopeless with his phone. He, I don't know oh, if you've tried to call him or yeah, yeah, no, he'll, he'll message. Look, we're in a couple of group yeah. chats and it'll take him like three days to get it's, back. It's not just you. It's even with me. I'm his brother yeah. and all, all his old yeah. mates. So what the guys? He just doesn't answer these calls. He doesn't. He says he sends a message saying, I'll call you back and never does. Never it's, does. it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. He's just so busy. He's, got, he's always flipping so many pancakes in the air at once. Yeah. It's like yeah, anyway, he's on the range somewhere. He's, he's always on the go, yeah. Mate, again, uh, appreciate you coming on and, uh, yeah, mate, definitely Thanks for definitely mate. catch up for a beer. Yep, beautiful. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.